Welcome. I am your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOT, and joined, as always, by my guy, Cody Safdick. You guys can follow him at CJ Safdick on Twitter, and we are here propping you up for UFC 279, headlined by a welterweight matchup between what could possibly be the last UFC fight in Nate Diaz's professional MMA career. He takes on... Hamza Chmaev and what many people are expecting to be a mauling, a butchering, and an execution. I am taking those words from Dan Hardy, a clip of him that I saw a couple days ago. But uh, Cody, what are your thoughts on this pay-per-view card? And ultimately, how are you doing, my friend? First of all, I don't care for Dan Hardy very much. I'm glad he <laughs> lost his job with the promotion. Most of the stuff he says is intolerable. But uh, yeah, like everyone said the same thing about the Gilbert Burns matchup. Like he's going to smash Gilbert Burns and he's the next coming of Habib and he's got this and he's got that. And then I thought in that fight, he looked way more human. You saw where improvements need to be made. And so now he gets a Nate Diaz fight. At least it's an extra two rounds. It's a five round fight. Nate, you know, uh, historically very tough, durable guy. If he can get him with rounds in fourth or fifth, the fourth or fifth round, maybe he has more success. You're just trying to make an argument for how it could be more competitive. But I don't think now is the time to, oh, yeah, oh, geez, he looked human against Gilbert Burns. Well, then nobody's got a chance against this guy. I think for the first time, it looked, maybe he is human. Maybe somebody can take a advantage of that. Nate Diaz just ain't the guy. And listen, this is all marketing and management, right? The UFC would have never put Nate Diaz versus Kamzat Chemaev together. They had offered D Diaz the fight. He said no. Of course, Chemaev wants it because it's, I wouldn't say a layup, but it's a very big name opponent. It's a, it's a slam dunk, Cody. Who, who's, who's, <laughs> who's an older 155-pound fighter who has one win in the last six years. So you can take that information for whatever you want. But yeah, this is the fight that anybody in the division would like. But Diaz is never going to take it, and the UFC wasn't going to put it together. And then all of a sudden, he's trying to play hardball, and he's not accepting fights, and he wants out of his contract, and he's, he's talking publicly. The UFC has a tendency to do this. You're on your way out. You're a former Ultimate Fighter champion. You gave us some of the best pay-per-views in company history. You, you fought all the best guys. You fought pretty much everyone we ever put in front of you. We want you to get embarrassed on your way out so the next promotion can't capitalize as much. And that's the only reason they've offered that. I, I didn't want to see this fight. I don't think there's a whole lot of intrigue and interest in this particular fight. You may like Nate Diaz and you want to see him fight. You may like Kamzat Chumayev and you want to see him fight. Just them fighting each other, I, I just don't think it's the most appealing fight going. But if you're the UFC, it's like, hey, Nate, you know, you're on your way out. This is what you're going to get. So I expect Chumayev to go out there, take him down. And I, I was saying to Paul yesterday, like, I wouldn't be – fully surprised to see Nate Diaz pull some shenanigans like what would happen if the fight started and then he just tapped out right away just like bent down and tapped out what, what would be the repercussion you <laughs> legally legally you owe him his show money right which I'm going to assume is probably in the neighborhood of half a million dollars right the win bonus which I don't think he was expecting to get anyways is out the window but contractually I don't think that they could do anything to him I don't think you could sue him I don't think you could get the money back I don't think you could say well that didn't count as a fight you need to fight one more time. He could absolutely just quit on a stool after a round. He could do what his brother did. Uh, his brother was in a different circumstance, but but basically just be like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. And if you're Nate Diaz and PFL might want you or Bellator might want you, or you can fight for your own promotion, or you can fight Jake Paul, or you can fight Logan Paul, or you could get something stupid going with Conor McGregor in an exhibition boxing magic. I don't know. He has options. Okay. But all those options look a lot less pretty. If he goes in, he gets his ass kicked for 25 minutes and comes out a changed man. So it's in his best interest. The only reason he's taking this fight to get out of the contract, he's adamant. The only reason he took this fight is to get out of his contract. It's his best interest not to fight tooth and nail, not to fight 25 minutes, not to take a sustained beating. 
Get in there, get out. That's it. So he might fight hard for a round. He may pack it in as soon as the going gets tough. He may just say, screw you. He may just walk around the ring, flip off everybody, and then say, I'm out of here. Uh, and, and in all of those cases, I mean, it doesn't look good for Nate Diaz picking up a win. Uh, but all the same, like he's just, he's at his, he's at the end of the road with the organization and he's been very adamant fight week and going on record and saying, I stopped training for this fight and I really just don't care. And people are online being like, that's a classic Diaz mental warfare. It's like, no, 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 I'm assuming, I'm telling you right now, it's not okay. It's not the Diaz brothers are known for work ethic, known for putting in the yeah. miles, known for getting in there and then mad dog and the guy and getting his face, not for basically being like, I don't want to be here. UFC's forced my hand. I didn't ask for this fight. I don't want to fight this guy. They're making it sound like I wanted to fight this guy. I don't. I don't care. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to believe it. I believe he's mentally checked out. So no way we can hit the money line on this fight. Just there's absolutely nothing to be made. As far as parlay material goes, you still can't even parlay it with anything because there's no money to be made. So I think you got to attack one of the props, and that's where it becomes dangerous because Nate Diaz is tough. He is durable, and you would think it's going to hit – and over one and a half and over two and a half. But at the same time, he doesn't want to be there and he's not fully prepared. This thing might not last all that long either, right? So I it just, I'm, I'm having trouble on a total. I'm having trouble on a prop. I'm having trouble for the money line, obviously. It's just not a great main event from a betting standpoint or really from an entertainment standpoint outside of two great characters. That, that's what I was going to say. And obviously we'll break down this fight a little bit further at the back end of the podcast. But in regards to the entertainment aspect, I think the entertainment of not knowing what the fuck is going to happen is the entertainment in itself, right? I think that's what people are going to be tuning in for is what if Nate Diaz does the whole flip the crowd off and flip Dana off and all those guys and just walk out of the cage. I think that's what people might be anticipating considering that this was likely a, a public execution as a lot of people are putting it, right? Um, obviously, we'll talk about that fight on the back end here when, when we get through the rest of the card. Um, but again, the rest of the card not really, you know, holding up too much weight to want you to shell out $75 or $70, whatever the fucking going price is now, right? What are your thoughts on the rest of the card in terms of uh, just from a fan's perspective? Well, from a fan's perspective, you can always make the arguments that's like, oh, well, I really like this fight or I really like that fight. But yeah, it's a pay-per-view. So you're trying to get shell people to shell out $75. Now you look at the last pay-per-view they put on and they have the kind courtesy to give you stuff like Jose Aldo and Marab Devashvili as like the third fight on the main card, right? This is a lot different. They didn't go out and get any stars. They were basically like, okay, we've got Nate Diaz. He is late 30s. He has won one fight in the last six years. He is a former lightweight, basically should be at lightweight. He is, by any stretch of the imagination, irrelevant in this division. Well, let's headline with him because he's a big name. And you got Kamzat Chemaev, who's 11-0, and he's definitely a star on the rise. And uh, I think people are a lot more interested in the upside to him. But you're trying to just give Nate Diaz's rub, that star power, over to Kamzat. But then the rest of the card, again, weak. I mean, it's a fairly weak prelim card. It's a fairly weak main card. And even the stuff that I do like, like uh, the Kevin Holland fight versus Rodriguez, great fight, great fight. Kevin Holland's like, yeah, they offered me this fight like two weeks ago because they said to him, yo, this is a weak-ass card. We need to bolster it up. Would you fight uh, Stephen Thompson? And he was like, yeah, I'd fight Stephen Thompson. Stephen Thompson turns it down. In comes Rodriguez, and all of a sudden you got a catchweight of 180. For no other reason than... They realized this card was shit. So, uh, yeah, do you want to pay 75 bucks? No. Do you know which sites to go to to avoid the 75 bucks? <laughs> I have my liberty to discuss that. That one's on you, but that's all I'll say. 
it is funny though that I'm glad that you brought up the fact that a lot of these fights came together short notice. Two of the top three fights came in short notice, right? Tony Ferguson, Li Jingliang, and the co-main event. That was also a short notice spot as well. So uh, UFC knew they kind of dropped the ball in terms of putting together a, a pay-per-view worthy card here. But you know, as diehards, we're still going to tune in regardless whether it's pay-per-view or paper stream should i say yeah you, you know you know the worst part about the whole thing is is that like the most probably untrustworthy guy in your roster probably nate diaz right so nate diaz <laughs> was like i ain't even fighting you bitch <laughs> yeah hold out weigh-ins it would be like oh shit jing liang yeah. gonna fight tony yeah. Ferguson in the pay-per-view headline but then they'd be like don't worry dog that's why we had kevin holland as like a standby opponent it's like Kevin Holland versus Chimaya. Like, haven't we already acknowledged that he can't stop takedowns? <laughs> I would watch the fight, of course. I'd watch anything. Yeah. We watch Contender Series every Tuesday, and uh, the last week was dope. Really good talent. Yeah. But most weeks, not exactly the highest level guys. We just like the action, right? In this case, you can make arguments that some of these fun fights are fun, and Diaz Chimaya would be fun as long as it lasts. Same way Nick Diaz versus Robbie Lawler was yeah. fun while it lasted. You knew coming in, Nick wasn't the same Nick. The shadow boxing looked off. Body looked off. Seeing Nate, same vibes. Just like timing's going to be off. Not going to be ready to go out there. Nick went out on his shield. I give him that. Will Nate do the same thing? Probably because he's a Diaz brother. But I almost feel like guilty. You know, like a part of me feels guilty. I've been watching this guy for forever, man. You know how it is. Ultimate yeah. Fighter season five winner. But yeah, just he's not the end of the road, and the UFC's not doing him any favors here. Shout our guy, Sad Sense Boulevard here, saying next two pay-per-views on paper make up for it. And I absolutely agree. 280 and 281 are straight fire. And I can't wait for those ones to come through. But then how do you justify what's a pay-per-view and what's not? Like 278 is dope and 280 is dope a month. and 281 is dope. Yeah, and that's it. And then it says once a month, it's like, yo, let's just totally mail it in. But charge people for it. Just see if they buy it. Now, this one to me, it's like, we'll see what Nate Diaz's drawing power is like. Because... Uh, Dana White very famously was like, this guy don't move the needle. People just don't care. And then he gets a short notice fight with Conor McGregor wins, becomes a massive star. Habib Nurmagomedov, I mean, he was undefeated and nobody can touch this guy. And he potentially one of the greatest fighters to ever lace up a pair of gloves. Nobody gave a shit till he beats Conor McGregor. Then he's a global star. Dustin Poirier. Dustin Poirier is a career, I'm not going to call a jobber or a mid-carter because like the dude's dope, right? But he, he never got to the top of the mountain. He was like a bottom-end contender that beats Conor McGregor, and it absolutely launches his career. Do you want to know the common denominators and all these guys? All their star power comes from Conor McGregor. Yeah. And Nate Diaz got his from Conor McGregor, and they're looking for him to pass it off to Chemayev. And you're goddamn right. If they could put Chemayev versus McGregor together, they would because they understand what it does for business. Exactly. All right, let's uh, get into the gist of the podcast here. Let's start breaking down some fights, but I quickly want to go over the UFC Paris props that we had from this past week, courtesy of CloudBet. We'll go over them real quick. There was only three of them that we talked about. Fight of the night went to Tuivas and Gan. That turned out to be way more of a slobber knocker than I think most people expected it to be. Thankfully, Gan comes through there uh, and gets that win in the third round. I believe it was end of third round. He cashes fight of the night award for plus 700. Main card fighter to get the quickest finish. We had to go all the way to the third round to get the quickest finish on the main mm -hmm. card here. It was Roman Kopilov who comes away at plus 1100. And then lastly, will Ty Tuivas record a takedown, Cody? He sure did not. No, for minus 251 comes through for anybody that wants to take the shot there. All right. 
Once again, shout out to the sponsors that we got for the show, betonline.eg. Link is in the description below. They'll match your initial deposit up to a thousand bucks. So take full advantage of that. You want it? We got some off weeks coming up for the UFC over the next four or five weeks. If you want to fill that void, Bet Online will more than likely have some MMA for you to bet on. So make sure you guys take full advantage of that. And then obviously, shout out to the All Star for having us on their platform. Drop a like and subscribe below if you haven't already to show them their support and let them know that you guys enjoy us on their platform unfortunately this week i won't be having those pretty graphics that you guys can find over on the all-stars app but make sure you guys go check them out because they are trying to be the one-stop shop for you guys for anything mma and ufc related check out the all-star app link to down that download that is in the description below all right cody let's fucking go first fight of the night we're going to be talking about a Canadian, Johan Langness, going up against Darian Weeks. In terms of odds, we're currently looking at minus 125 for Darian Weeks and plus 105 the return on Johan Langness. Now, money coming in on Langness, it looks like, but it's hard for me to trust a guy that has four to five minutes of cardio and pretty much just relies on getting guys out of there early. It really hasn't worked out for guys with that type of style over the last several weeks, right? The one that comes to mind right off the bat for me is Daniel Lacerda, who just pretty much wilted as soon as Alta Moreno started to put it on him. That could be what ends up happening here, right? Darian Weeks, I think he's the better overall fighter or all-around fighter, if you want to call it that. I think he could land takedowns here. I think he could stay away from the big power of Johan long enough to the point that he could start to take over later and potentially finish him later in this fight. Johan is obviously live to get a knockout early, as he always is in a lot of his fights. Um, Johan in round one currently sits at plus 475. I think that's probably the spot that you'll look to target or even mm-hmm. Lena by KO at plus 250. Otherwise, you know, weeks round three plus 800, weeks round two plus 600, not too bad of spots either, but even uh, weeks inside the distance plus 185, plus 165, not too bad of a look. Lastly, uh, fight doesn't go to decision, minus 205. I don't mind that kind of chalk. There are a few guys that we can rely on to go out there and give us violence. Johan is one of those guys. And I think that Darian is one of those guys that will, you know, be the perfect partner to tangle with to ensure that violence does occur in this fight. So give me weeks, weeks inside the distance and week, weeks late round props as well. What about yourself? You're going to give some credence to the Canadian side here, or do you think that weeks gets this done as well? Yeah, honestly, not a Johan Linus fan, never have been. I feel like the same thing you mentioned, he just doesn't have the cardio. He's got big power, he knocks some guys out. But even in a lot of his wins, you see him absolutely about to curl over and get fatigued. The opponent recognizes it, tries to run in, and then, you know, he might land that big shot. The Evan Cuts fight, I felt like it was trending towards Cuts to get the win. And then Linus catches him, a bit of an early stoppage in my opinion. But all the same, Linus has got that big power. Against Justin Burlinson on the Contender Series, I totally faded him. He's like a three to one underdog in that spot, but boom, big left hook. He's got that big power. And then of course with Gabe green, the first time I like, Oh, maybe the guy's not as bad as I keep telling people he is. It's like he did land the knockdown, but again, I mean, as soon as he gets tired, I mean, he's very susceptible. So yes, I mean, I'm, I'm picking Darian winks. I feel like the line's close enough and all this is that and good, but sometimes I get in my own head, right? Get in my own head. It's like, I just want to know everything that there is to know that I can figure out. Right. In Johan Lioness's case, looked into it and a lot of guys from his gym there himself included it was like johan before is undefeated right so everything he's doing he's is right because you go out and you get the results it was like that loss was like a huge blowback to him that was like damn i gotta fix my cardio i gotta do a zillion other things in mma i gotta work on my ground game some more 
So apparently the guy's been like an absolute dog in the gym, just like increasingly getting better. He's gone on fight week this week saying that he's made a significant improvements and he's looking forward to showing them. And this is just a low level fight. Okay. You're trying to fade one low level guy with another low level guy. That's what gets you in trouble. That's what screwed me against contender series this week. Jimmy Lawson, Carl Williams, not good, not good. Turns out fucking Jimmy Lawson that much worse. Oh my God. Just got- slightly better. Just slightly better. He, he didn't even. Oh man, I don't even. I don't even want to talk about it every day. <laughs> what I will tell you is that you, I knew going in, Carl's low level, right? So Jimmy Lawson low level too, but sure, the other guy's low level. As a result, it's like no, you want to get a good guy. Darian Weeks not good. Okay, what does he have? Four takedowns against Brian Barberena. Everybody that fights Brian Barberena and shoots four takedowns ends up with four of them. He had no ability to hold Brian Barberena down. When Barberena got back up, you saw Weeks start to fatigue and. You give him a pass because it was his uh, short notice UFC debut against a tough, grindy guy like 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 Brian Barbrina. That's fair. But then his next fight against Ian Gary, he showcases nothing. He takes him down once, no success with it. Uh, he hardly threw any offense. He couldn't figure out the kid's rhythm. It looked like a very stiff and robotic performance. Now the UFC takes this guy who's 0-2, really hasn't shown a whole lot. They send him to France to take on Cedric Dumbay. It's just a squash match. They want Cedric Dumbay to come in and look good in front of the French crowd. So sure, Weeks has probably been working on nothing but wrestling because why would you have wanted to stand with Cedric Dumbay? But as a result, the fight gets canceled. They just shift him back to this card as a filler piece. Johan Linus is supposed to take on Miguel Beza on this card, so I know he's going to be ready to dance. And yeah, you got two guys that are middling, lower level, get in there, lots of possibilities. If Weeks gets his wrestling going, that's fine. Johan Linus is a brown belt under Fabio Holanda, so I don't think his ground game is totally out of place. Stand-up-wise, Weeks might have a little more volume, but Linus, I think, has got, I wouldn't say the better technique because he's very loopy at times, but certainly the more power. I think he probably wins the striking exchanges on the basis of landing the better shot. I think he probably wins the grappling exchanges on the basis of being a better grappler. It's the cardio, the very first thing you mentioned. Can the guy fight for more than five minutes? And that, I don't know. But what I do know is the minus 190 for fight doesn't go the distance. Looks pretty good to me. Linus is going to win. He's going to win early. He's going to catch him. He's going to put him away. I could see him winning the decision. It just doesn't seem like it's the most statistical common approach, I guess, would be him picking up a decision. He has one in his entire career. Uh, but then for Weeks, meanwhile, it's like if Weeks is going to win, it's going to be Johan Linus tiring himself out. And when he's that tired, anybody can put him away. So fight doesn't go the distance. Minus 190 probably covers you on both ends. Yeah. Um, again, usually when we disagree on a Canadian, a lot of people are like, oh, this this has got to be a lock, right? So it seems like we have a little bit of, uh, you know, not, I don't, I don't want to call it dissension per se, but a little bit of sketchiness in regards to this fight. So again, I did the show with Paul yesterday, Dogger Pass, and I picked Darian Weeks. And it's like, ah, it's a close fight and whatever. I think Weeks has got better cardio and he might use his wrestling. And I'm just, I'm not a Johan Lyness fan. Never have been, right? But again, then you look at it a little more and it's like Linus has probably, the, he definitely has the bigger wins, right? He's got more experience. He's got more punching power. He's got a better ground game. He's shown glimpses. He's shown bad stuff in his fights. He's shown glimpses of good stuff in his fights. Now you look back at Darian Weeks. At what point does Darian Weeks look legit? What point does Darian Weeks look like this is a game plan that he can stick to? His wrestling? Is his wrestling good? I think it's that good. His striking? Is his striking good? I don't think it's all that good. Cardio seems pretty good. Durability seems pretty good. And luckily for him, those two things would be good enough to beat Johan Lioness. So I'm not disagreeing with you or anybody that's taking either side in the slightest bit. It's a close fight. Line, you know, definitely suggests that it's a close fight. But uh, like, I almost feel like I would shift this one into a dogger pass category. Lioness is the slight underdog. 
So maybe you go for him there. But uh, yeah, luckily for you and me, we do props, baby. And then the this is not a prop, it's a total. Well, no, yeah, Still fight goes the distance. Prop. Yeah, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever. Prop, total, same shit. <laughs> fight goes the distance at minus 190. I think that, that would be all right. Last week you mentioned uh, it was minus 270, Miranda versus uh, St. Denis. Yeah. Ooh. Not going to go, right? Damn, what a good bet that was. <laughs> Those guys just right from the jump, bro. Right from the jump. Shit, man. They just absolutely threw down. Now, mind you, Benoit Saint Denis has one career knockout win, and Miranda, uh, I only been knocked out one time in his whole career. Right? They're both submission guys, but it's like when you fight like that, it ain't gonna go very long. Johan Lainess kind of fights like that. He's going to go big. He's going to throw haymakers. If he lands, you're in a lot of trouble. If he gets tired in the process, he's in a lot of trouble. But I just don't see it going the distance. All right, all right. Let's get to the next one here. We got a strawweight matchup on tap here. It's going to be between Elise Reed, who's coming in as a plus-140 underdog. The return on the UFC newcomer and Combate Global uh, alumni, if you want to call it that. Uh, Melissa Martinez coming in at minus-165. Fun fight here between two strikers, obviously with different styles. Elise Reed, a little bit more of a Taekwondo background compared to the kickboxing background of Melissa Martinez. Uh, something they usually go up against when they're fighting opponents is grapple-heavy approaches, right? That's usually been the kryptonite to their games. Uh, even when she's losing, she wins, though, with Melissa Martinez in her last fight against Desiree Yanez. I believe that she ended up, she should have deserved to lose that fight given the grappling success of Yanez, but... I don't know if it was the the insides of the Combate Global uh, team that wanted that hype train of Melissa Martinez to continue, but she ends up getting her hand raised there. Um, so uh, a little bit of concern in terms of the grappling from both women, but I'd be surprised if either woman looks to go to the grappling in this fight at all, right? Maybe one has it up their sleeve where they're like, you know what, I'm just going to draw wrestling and I'm going to try to exploit it for my opponent this time around. But how much improvements can they truly make, you know, over that amount of time to try to go out there and use that to their uh, uh, to exploit their opponent's uh, grappling deficiencies. Now, Martinez has been out of the cage for close to three years, right? It's been a while since we've seen her compete, but she hasn't just been sitting on the sidelines collecting dust. She's actually out there uh, representing Mexico on the world scene in terms of kickboxing, and she picked up a gold medal last year. Um, I believe it was in Hungary. I could be off on... Oh, no, she was in Italy uh, where she picked up that gold medal. So very good look from her uh, in terms of staying active and sharpening her tools. I, it's hard for me to trust a UFC debutante, you know, 25 years old with not the greatest level of experience on her on her record as a chalky favorite debuting in the UFC. But it seems like she should be the faster fighter here, which will likely allow her to get to the target a little bit quicker than Elise Reed will be able to. So I do lean the Melissa Martinez side here. And although, you know, Martinez likes to get finishes, likes to finish her opponents, I do think that this fight likely goes the full 20 or full 15 minutes. So fight goes to decision at minus 225. Not a bad look, but Martinez specifically to win by decision at plus 130 is probably the prop that I would look at for this matchup. I think she's the, the better fighter here, and I think she'll be able to showcase the better striking in this spot as well. I don't want to completely write off Elise Reed because I think her public perception is not representative of how good she actually is. I think she is actually kind of good, and we've so seen that in a couple of her fights already. And she doesn't have to fight a grappler in this matchup either. So I think she could showcase her skills a little bit more. Unfortunately, I think Martinez just has a little bit more in the toolbox, and that's going to be too much for Reed. So give me Martinez by decision, plus 130. What's your analysis of this matchup? 
Yeah, I mean, I got the same thing for the most part. I There's no world that exists that I want Martinez at minus 170, right? Just because she's been on for three years. She's coming off a questionable win in her last fight. Like, all of that does not bode well. Minus 170 in your UFC debut. How come she's even in the UFC? She hasn't fought in three years and beat Dirty D. Yanez on a split decision. A debatable split decision. On the undercard of Tito Ortiz versus Alberto fucking Del Rio, <laughs> man. My God. But she's in the UFC, so minus 170, like that right away is a big red flag. And then people are like, man, she's been competing in kickboxing. And listen, I'm picking her largely on the same basis as everybody else. She's been competing in kickboxing. But one, a lot of these fights are not readily available. Two, they're amateur fights. They're amateur kickboxing matches, right? So as much as it's like, oh, yeah, she's been doing – I don't know how you can go from pro MMA – fall back to the amateur kickboxing ranks, right? If a pro, if a, if Tyron Woodley decided I'm going to go box Jake Paul as an exhibition, sure. But do you think he could start off an amateur career? No, they'd say you already turned professional. So she's finding extremely low level girls in places like Italy. Uh, yeah. From what I can see, she likes to utilize the low kick. Uh, she is aggressive. I think all that's good enough to beat Elise Reed, who tends to throw one shot at a time. I think the volume and the low kicks will definitely start to add up. But yeah, I mean, the money line's bad. So you look to improve it, and you look to improve it by the decision. So I get the same thing as you, plus 130, Martinez by decision. And uh, really, it just comes back down to a style clash. When you look at Elise Reed, Taekwondo um, base, she's very much one shot at a time. She likes to use her kicks. She likes to feel that, that range and that distance. When you look at uh, Melissa Martinez, meanwhile, more of a kickboxer. She's going to utilize those low leg kicks and she's going to throw more in combination. And I think that's going to be the key here. If you can use the low leg kicks to kind of slow down Elise Reed's movement and then get her to exchange with you, she'll throw one or two at a time. You need to throw a combination. As much as stinging power as well, if they're both going to land, I feel like Martinez has got the more power. And that's the thing with Elise Reed. As much as there are some moments for her, you remember the Jasmine Jasu Devisius fight? Not good for Elise Reed. In fact, I thought she lost that one personally. All the same. Against Corey McKenna, she wins a split decision, but it's a it's a terrible fight. Corey McKenna opts not to use her wrestling until the third round, marches forward, doesn't land anything, and all it is is Reed moving back and landing one shot at a time, one shot at a time, one shot at a time. But that last fight was Sam Hughes. Sam Hughes not really known for her wrestling but of course that's the path of victory against elise reed so she uses it the first round reese is fighting back or at least reed's fighting back she's attempting to get back up to her feet the second round she flat out gives up on herself she just gets taken down she looks over her just body just sinks and from that point on it's one-way traffic until she gets stopped by sam hughes in the third i don't need that kind of mentality of like oh i'm losing uh it's like you you gotta keep fighting and if melissa martinez is going to come forward land the low kicks throw in combinations pressure her, back her up, cause Elise Reed to second-guess herself, that's going to be the path of victory. So I take her. I take her by decision. I'm hoping Reed just stays the course and doesn't uh, get discouraged and kind of look for a way out. I like it. I like it. I like it. All right, let's move on to the next one here. Keep the trade moving along. We got another Canadian stepping into the cage here, and the 135-pound division, we got Chad and Helliger going up against Haile Alatang. In terms of odds, we're looking at minus 170 for Haile and plus 145 to return on Chad. Uh, this is one of those spots where I had to go out there and fade the Canadian, unfortunately. I do think that Haile Alatang is a better overall fighter. The guy made the national Chinese national wrestling team at the age of 15 which is crazy. So he landed seven takedowns in his first UFC, two UFC fights, but since then has only com or shot for one takedown uh, in his preceding three fights. 
or, or his following three fights, I should say. And he just seems to enjoy striking more often than not now, right? That's that's the big thing. And, you know, when he starts taking more and more steps up in competition, he's going to have to go back to that wrestling base. And even if it's not to go out there and, like, Khabib a dude, it's more so just to give the mixed martial arts, right? Like, just go out there, make your opponent think about more than just your striking, and that should allow your striking to thrive even more if you have your opponent thinking about the level changes and potential takedowns that are coming his way. Chad, you know, started off his career 2-5 and five, and then has gone on a 10-fight winning streak, which is very impressive. But Cody, like, me and you know it. He was fighting some decent competition on the Canadian, Canadian regional scene, but even the Canadian regional scene, like, the, the higher levels of it still don't really hold account to, like, the middle-of-the-road UFC level of guys, right? So good, you know, great win <laughs> over a, over the hill Randy Turner. Shout out to Chad and Halliger for doing that, right? But, like, you're not going to go out there and use that type of style to beat some of these better uh, UFC guys. He dropped the first round to Jesse Strader. You know what I mean? That's not a good look to me, in my opinion. Um, I, I think with the mix of takedowns, level changes, and just being the busier fighter, uh, Haile Yalatang should win this fight. Chad, very durable. I'll definitely give him that. He can take a shot on the chin and keep moving forward. So I think it's going to take a, a full performance here, a full 15 minutes for a Haile Yalatang to go out there and get that win. So I personally don't mind the money line already where it's at, at minus 170. But in terms of her prop, since that's what the show is all about, Haile Yalatang by decision currently sits at plus 180. I think that's a damn good spot. And even a fight to go to decision at minus 150. Not too bad, right? I know Chad has big power in his hands, but Haile is very durable in my opinion. And I think he should be able to eat the big shots of Chad and stay in this fight. So no matter who wins this fight, you can go with minus 150 on the fight goes to decision. But I think it's going to be highly with a diverse game plan here that should get him his hand raised. So give me Haile Tang by decision. What are you thinking here? Am I writing off Chad a little bit too much here? Or do you think he has a shot to pull off the upset? I mean, listen, it's MMA. Uh, anybody's always got a shot. But yeah, I'm going to have to agree with a lot of what you're saying. With Chad uh, and Ledger, I remember same thing. I tried to book this guy when he was two and five because like everybody wanted to fight him. <laughs> The listen, the big reason why he went on this win streak is he fights James Mancini, boom boom, at 130. Then his next fight against Josh Smith, 130. That fight with Randy Turner, 130. Fight with Eric Wilson, 135. Of course, he's a bum. And then Terrence Chan, <laughs> he fought him up 125. So Chad was actually fighting at 125 and 130 pounds. Yeah. Wasn't necessarily the biggest bantam weight. Beats Brady Heinstein. That looks good because Brady's a tough finalist, but. He was like 20 years old at the time. He's like 21 years old at the time. Man. He was young. I'm shocked that he came all the way to Canada to fight like the hometown guy at that age. But now you're into the UFC, right? Now you fight Muin Gafarov in the contenders, 135. You're in the UFC. You beat Jesse Strader, 135. It, he's not coming back down at 125. And I feel like the reason he had a lot of his success was being a bit of a bigger guy, having a nasty guillotine choke. He has cardio for days. He has all these great intangibles. The thing is, is that he's like three months short of his 36th birthday and his body's starting to, to pack it in. The Jesse Strader fight, I loaded up on him. I think he was a top ticket guy against Jesse yeah. Strader. He's better than him everywhere. He gets taken down four times as a giant red flag. He got boxed up for the better part of the first two rounds is a giant red flag. Jesse Strader is Aaron Carter's boxing coach. Aaron fucking Carter. Now it didn't matter. He was going to lose to Lamar Odom regardless, but he just, <laughs> he seems like a low level, right? And he was bigger, faster, stronger, won the striking exchanges, won the wrestling exchanges, and then boom, he got caught in the third round. So I'm elated. Everyone's elated. Chad gets on the microphone after. He looked like shit, by the way. And he he um he acknowledges that. 
He says in the mic afterwards, he's like, I was really hurt coming into this fight. Normally, I'm known for my cardio. He's like, I couldn't do no road work. You know, my knees banged up. He had a bunch of uh, lingering injuries. At 35, man, the body's not just suddenly going to get healthy again. I feel like he kind of got into the UFC a little bit late. The win over Mwen Gafarov was dope because he was just like a 5-1 to one underdog. But even Dana was like, I wouldn't sign this guy on that performance. But he's 35. He was 2-5 and five to start his career up. I'll give him a shot, right? It wasn't like it was the best win going. But he still did give up those five takedowns to Mwen Gafarov. He gave four to Jesse Strader. You've already acknowledged it. Haile Alatang takes this guy down. Uh, I think if he wants to take down, he gets the takedown. Alatang, meanwhile, good size at 135. He's going to be bigger than him. He's going to be stronger than him. If he does get the takedowns, he's just going to set up shop. I mean, yeah, there's an offhand chance that Chad snacks up a guillotine choke or something of the nature. But I would think for the most part, Haile Alatang's tough. He's durable. He needs to get to his wrestling. And just don't fall in love with the striking. Just because you knocked out Kevin Kroon last time out, don't try to just strike with this guy. But even if he does take that approach... I feel like uh, you're not going to see that same cardio that you normally see out of Chan, Chad and the Ledger. He'll start to slow down a little bit. And at some point, Alatang's going to want to seal the round, seal the deal, seal the fight. Search for your takedown. So I would have to go with that. In terms of the props, the props that I like here is one fight goes the distance at minus 155. Chad's never been knocked out. In all of his losses, he's never been knocked out. He used to have a weak-ass grappling game. But that's the reason he goes on this win streak is he lost. And then he went over to uh to well sorry what's this camp called uh champions, champions creed. creed champions creed yeah. same place as takeem duwadu right and it's one of the better gyms in alberta but since he's gone there and linked up with head coach brian bird his grappling's gotten way better his chin's never been a problem and his grappling it's not really defensively a problem meanwhile when you look at highly alatang durability is not a problem for him you saw what casey kinney did to the dude and he just sat there and took it and i, I don't think a submission problem is, is, is his issue i think both guys are durable enough that if Ali Alatang is getting takedowns all night, it's going to decision. If Ali Alatang chooses to play with his food and stand with him and gets outpointed, it's still going towards the decision. At minus 155, fight goes the distance. I like that. But of course, I am picking Ali Alatang. And I do think he wins a decision. So I would chase that Ali Alatang on points. For anybody keeping score, there is another Canadian that both me and Cody are picking against this weekend. So chalk up a dub for a highly yellow tang but hopefully he can come through and make it happen for us i will say this though I'll, I'll always have like begrudgingly i'll just hold it against chad for not finishing jesse like a minute earlier because i had the under two and a half there that's <laughs> one of those fights where the fight doesn't go to decision but the under two and a half doesn't cash the other one was julia stoliarenko against julia vila she finishes her with like a minute to go courtney casey versus jillian robertson no, that one killed me, man. Yeah, I was all like, over that. And then and she hears like the 10 second clap for Jesus. She's like, like, let's go. YOLO tries to stand up and gets choked. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. All right. Let's get uh back on track here. Next up, we're gonna be talking about uh let me pull it up here real quick. Uh Norma Dumont going up against Danielle Wolf. It's the UFC debut of former boxing standout i don't even know if we can call her a standout considering she had a pretty sketchy record let me just pull it up here real quick um shout out to box rec uh 30 and 14 so not the greatest boxing record uh based on what we normally see with these boxers uh but yeah daniel Wolf finally making her ufc debut after getting a contract on the 2020 uh season of the uh dana white contender series after she was able to pick up her first professional mma win over tanisha Tennant that night now she steps into the cage against normal dumont who's coming in as a minus 410 favorite Good Lord, did I never expect to see that in my life, right? Like, I don't care if it's Daniel Wolf. I don't care if it's my grandma, 
Yeah, I mean, a minus 400 on Norma Dumont is sketchy to me considering the decision-making issues that I believe that she has, right? The last fight for her against Macy Kiasson, good Lord. Like, she wakes up in the third round, finally. Those first two rounds, she just lets it pass her by. You know what I mean? She lets Kiasson kind of touch her up against the cage, puts it, uh, you know, it doesn't even dig for underhooks. She doesn't even look to get out of those bad positions. She's just there. And then in the third round, she realizes she's down. She puts the foot on the gas. Then she finally starts to have some success. Unfortunately for her, too little, too late. Then the fight before that, the Aspen Ladd fight, right? Luckily for her, Aspen Ladd didn't want to fight. So she was able to go out there and jab her up for 25 minutes and win that fight pretty handily. Uh, she just passes Felicia Spencer, who, you know, we all know that Felicia doesn't really have much of a striking game. She struggled to get her grappling going. So obviously Norma Dumont is going to be able to touch her up on the feet. The The question here is, one, will Norma Dumont go for the takedown right away? Because she should, right? She needs to, in my opinion. She's going to be outgunned on the feet. And I'm not saying Daniel Wolf is this crazy knockout puncher by any means, because on her boxing record of her 30 wins, zero have come via knockout. She hasn't even won one fight by knockout in boxing. So I don't think the, the, the power will be too much of an issue uh, for Norma Dumont to have to worry about. But I do think that um, that like maybe the smaller gloves and possibly the technical uh, advantages she has here over Norma Dumont could open up the possibility of Daniel Wolf finding the chin of her as well. The I, I took this fight in, in two ways, right? One, I did take a little bit of a poke on Daniel Wolf at plus 330, 0.75 units, strictly for the fact that Norma Dumont may not go out there and fight like a minus 400. She may give a reason for Daniel Wolf to be live in this fight. And I'm okay at this level of women's MMA to take a plus 330 shot. But then I slightly hedged. And by slightly hedged, what I mean by is uh, taking the under two and a half at plus 175. You know, I took a one unit shot on that because if Norma does get this fight to the ground and if she truly does have as much of an advantage there as I think that she does, as most people believe she does, she should be able to get to dominant position. She should be able to get to a point where she could get a submission or full mount and open up some big strikes from on top and get Daniel Wolf out of there. The other big question mark that I have is the fact that... Um, Sorry, <laughs> just a fucking, this one troll always finds a way to get to, to one of my streams. Either way, but uh, the, the one issue that I have is, we know this, Cody, in women's MMA, size and strength plays a factor. Daniel Wolf is four inches taller than Norma Dumont. She's going to have a three-inch reach advantage as well, and that should be more than enough uh, for her to be competitive in terms of possibly stopping takedowns, possibly keeping this fight in the stand-up realm where she should be able to pitter-patter um, Norma Dumont from the outside, possibly find a KO of her own. But I've set myself in a point that the only way I lose this uh, money on this fight is if Norma Dumont wins by decision. I'd be surprised if she wins by decision. It would have to be a finish on the ground, which is what I think she'll be capable of doing. So in terms of specific props, like I've already laid out, under two and a half, I think is very live at this underdog mark that we're getting. I got plus 175. I'm seeing plus 190 on best fight odds. So you can you know shop around and see the best line that you can get. Uh, Dumont by submission, plus 275. I think that's a great line as well. I'm seeing plus 300 on certain spots. Uh, and then... I'd consider Wolf by TKO, but the fact that she doesn't even have a single TKO on her boxing record gives me a little bit more pause. But maybe circumstantially, she might be able to pull one out here, being the much better striker. So give me uh, Dumont, Dumont by submission. But the best prop that I like is the under two and a half in this spot. What about yourself? Am I giving Daniel Wolf too much props, or do you think that she gets steamrolled here? Oh, I think you're, I think you're muted, my friend. 
My bad. Uh, you are giving her way too many props, but I understand why you're doing it because today is her motherfucking birthday. 39 years old. 39 years old getting ready for your second MMA fight. Ain't that some shit? So I, I think she's in big time trouble. The boxing record, you look at the boxing record, she's 30 and 14, right? Those are all amateur fights. None of those are pro. They're all amateur, right? So when you look at the dates on them, she fights uh, December 11th, December 13th, and December 14th, right? So she has three fights in a four-day span because it's amateur boxing. And it's women's amateur boxing, which means it's three two-minute rounds, which means she's going out there and fighting for six fucking minutes, right? That's, that's how long the fight is. And then you probably have to fight another girl uh, tomorrow for six minutes. And then maybe two days after that, depending on how many girls fall out of this tournament, you might have to fight another girl for six minutes. Well, what are you getting prepared for? No reason. She has no knockouts. She's only fighting them for like zero time. Now you look at the losses and it's like, okay, all right. Well, some of these girls seem like okay amateurs. When was the last win she had? Okay, right, right. It was at that same tournament. She beat uh, Shinraya Tenya Moreau on a majority decision. The girl was eight and 10. Huh. The girl she fought before that was one and six. Huh. She's got a split decision over Morgan Farrell, who's three and two. She got a split decision over Kendra Smergis, who's six and three. She's fighting low-level amateur women boxers and losing the majority, not the majority of the time. She's 30 and 14, right? But like she's winning at like a 66% clip against like girls that took this up as a boxer size class as a way to get in shape a year ago, eight months ago, right? Very, very, very low level. She never turns professional. So now you see her come into uh, contender series. I don't know why Dana's so high up on her, but they bring her in. She proceeds to not look good in the boxing. She used two punches. She's a jab and a straight right. That's it. There's no hooks. There's no body work. She looked very abysmal, right? Tanisha Tenna, meanwhile, backs her up, outlands her, takes her down. Wolf got no game off her back. She got no game on her feet. And then she just quietly takes two more years off. She would have to be training just at the highest level with the best training partners and the best coaches and to, and just really hone in all these skills and add new skills and add new tools to the toolbox. And just from the difference of 37 to 39, do, do you really think she made those improvements? No, I would say if anything, she's slowing down. This is not a good, this is not a good fight for her. If, if she gets taken down, she's not getting back up. If she does not get taken down, I didn't even know that she has a ton of success standing, to be honest with you. Like she did not look good boxing against Tanisha Tennant. I don't know that she's going to suddenly come out here and just have a, a whole a whole different game. Like I don't know. There's, there was very little kicking. I feel like Norma Dumont should be able to enter the pocket, kind of throw her hands. I, even though I don't think she's a very good striker herself, she looked eye against Aspen Ladd, which was a 25-minute fight. So at least her cardio kind of checked out in that. And then if you remember her fight with uh, Ashley Evans-Smith, her boxing looked pretty good there. She looked big. She looked strong. She looked physical. She looks like she could fight at 145 pounds. This is 145 pounds. Danielle Wolf, meanwhile, a big girl, 145 pounds. But I just get the impression that it's like Dumont. They call her Big Norm for a reason. You know, she missed weight five pounds every time she tried to make 35. At 45, she's bigger. She's filled out. She gets this fight to the ground. She wins. If she doesn't get this fight to the ground, she probably still wins. But women's MMA minus 450. <laughs> I've been there before, my friend, and I ain't <laughs> going back. So, yeah, no, I, I would have to hit a straight pass on that one. I know what you're saying. Fight ends inside the distance. Um, I'm, I'm, and that's that's the prop that I selected for this one as well. Fight doesn't go the distance. But it also, like, it's it's a slow bog. Like, if she just stays to the outside and jabs in the big cage, Norma Dumont, who's shown very little ring IQ at, uh, ring IQ at times, 
plods around and follows her around and gets her face jabbed off for a round or two before she even tries to clinch up, take the fight to the ground. It's just going to kill time off the clock. So I don't know how much I love it, but I went with the fight doesn't go the distance. I like it. And uh, a special cloud bat prop here as well. Actually, you know, get your thoughts on it. Uh, Norma Dumont, uh, successful takedowns over under one and a half. I would say over. Like, if I'm her team, it's like, listen, this girl is a boxer on paper. Her only skill set appears to be her left hand and her right hand, and she only throws two punches. Take her down. Take her down and have your way. And if she does take her down in the first, I don't think she puts her away in the first. She comes out in the second round. She takes her down again. There you go. You've got your over two. If she does take her down, though, Wolf ain't getting back up. You need her to get taken down in two consecutive rounds to hit that number. I don't think you're getting two in one round. Wolf's just got no get-up game. So Norman Dumont would be foolish not to try to exploit that for sure. But again, you look at some of her fights and she's kind of content to stand in there and trade punches. And it's not as if her wrestling's really even all that good to begin with. So if Wolf's done anything over the last two years, maybe it has been sprawl and brawl techniques. Maybe it has been trying to keep your back off the cage. And maybe she's going to come in with some decent footwork. But she tired against Tanisha Tennant because it was like, oh, shit. Did you just say the round was over? This is normally my entire amateur fight. One single MMA round. Now you got to fight three of them. Cardio's not there. Again, it's her birthday. Maybe she blew out her candles and wished for a victory in the UFC on Saturday. And some god is going to bring coming true for her. But uh, I, I couldn't in any good conscience bet Danielle Wolf. No chance. Yeah, uh, I, I'm happy to take the half unit shot here just to due to the questionable fight IQ on the Daniel Wolf side. But hey, it could end up being one takedown for Dumont and uh, that under ends up cashing, which is currently sitting at plus 100 and she ends up getting the finish that quickly. It's it's absolutely possible. So a little bit of a sketchy prop there. If you have confidence on either side, you are getting a good enough price either way. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We're going to be talking about uh, big boys, Jake Collier and Chris Barnett going uh, taking on each other. We got Jake Collier coming in at minus 410. Hilarious considering uh, how much people were shitting on him not too long ago. But now he comes in minus 410 against uh, beast boy Chris Barnett, who's coming in at plus 330. Um, pretty straightforward, easy fight to break down, right? Chris could either clip him on the chin and Chris by, by knockout is currently sitting at plus 600 or Jake just sludges on him and, and, you know, L points him, maybe takes him to the ground, finishes him on the ground, um, completely outworks him. Like I think the inside the distance is on the table here for both guys, Collier inside the distance currently sitting at plus 110. But like, are we so certain that he is now a finisher? Cause he took down Chase Sherman and smashed his face through the mat. I'm, I'm not, completely sold on that myself collier by decision currently sets up plus 150 i'm kind of you know flip-flopping on either side there but i think i'll end up going maybe even the over two and a half at minus 115 i don't think is that bad of a line right it wasn't that long ago that people are you know foaming at the mouth to bet the overs in jay collier fights because he just fights with that slow plodding place where he's just able to touch you up from the outside and just stay active enough um i'll lean I'll lean the over two and a half as my favorite prop in this one, but I could potentially see maybe a late finish for Collier coming through um, or even him winning by decision at plus 150. What about yourself? Yeah, no, I kind of got the like complete opposite opinions on that. I feel like Jake Collier, maybe not the biggest finisher that I'm going to agree with, but I mean, he's a guy that puts pace on you, right? I mean, he lands tons of strikes for a heavyweight. Look at uh, him versus Arlovsky lands 93. That's good for heavyweight. Carlos Felipe, he lands 130. Should have won that fight, by the way. Him versus John Vellante, 123. Him versus Marcel Fortuna, 94. So I understand what you're saying. He's landing all these shots. It's not doing anything. That is fair. 
At the same time, it's pace, it's volume, and that's not going to be good for Chris Barnett because he's not in very good shape and does not keep much of a pace, right? When you look at Jake Collier, it's like he's trying to smother guys. He's just trying to, you know, continuously be throwing punches and just get you into those deeper waters. But here's a guy that's a former middleweight, right? So is middleweight power going to translate over to heavyweight? Probably not. But at six foot three, he could fill into that frame. Barnett, meanwhile, is five foot nine. There's no world that exists that this man should be fighting at heavyweight. He has the frame of a welterweight. Um, but he wants to fight up and he's a freak show fighter. And so he goes to Japan and he fights at 330 pounds and he largely fights guys that are O and O. I'm pretty sure the win that got him into the UFC was over a guy that was O and O. He's just here for a, or a fun time. That's it. I don't really see a whole lot of skill out of him. Yes. He's a Taekwondo black belt. Yes. He can throw a nasty hook kick. Thank God. I actually did have him bet over Jean Vellante. Only fact I did that is because Jean Vellante announced he was retiring before the fight. And that never works out people ever works out for people uh unless it was like your eye favor and then they always come back for one more right but yeah i just i just don't see it out of barnett so the rothwell fight right you're taking on an age ben rothwell hasn't fought in a long time barnett comes out first round throws a couple rinky ding strikes clearly should not be in there with the heavyweight second round he gasses out he gets caught in a guillotine choke ben rothwell has a nasty guillotine choke he just hadn't hit it anybody on anybody in like four years well barnett's there for the submission because he doesn't have good cardio. He doesn't really have much heart, and he's there to get worn down. The Jean Vellante fight, he wins. He knocks him out. That's great. He does his little dance, does a little front flip, does a little huggy bear, the same stuff that made him this, this big fan favorite, right? But I, I, I would hate to chalk it up to a lucky shot. It takes a lot of skill to throw that bitch. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of just like a lucky shot. You got Jean Vellante, who's very fat and out of shape, who's announced that he's retiring before the fight even started. What did you think was going to happen? Everybody bet against Jean Vellante because they knew his heart wasn't in it, his head wasn't in it, and he gets clipped. So now you get the Martin Budai fight. Martin Budai, not that good, right? You saw in his last fight, certainly, the guy is extremely limited. All he had to do was just lean on Chris Barnett against the cage. And Barnett just slowly, energy levels, depleting, depleting, depleting. Third round, it's a little shot to the cup. He hits the deck. Domas, I can't fight no more. <laughs> I can't fight. Are you kidding me? I can't fight. He flat out quit. He flat out fucking quit. Now think about the Rothwell fight. He got tired and then tapped out. Well, he kind of quit, but it was a guillotine choke. You give it to him. The Volante fight, he lands a kick over a, a bad version of Volante. And then the Budai fight, you just pressure him up against the cage and he quits again. That's where he's at. That's where he's trending. He's got a lot of losses on his record that are fairly early too. Like he fought Alex Nicholson. He just got bombed out of there like nothing, right? I think a big, strong, physical guy put hands on him, even if it's not a one-hitter, quitter, kill shot, he's just going to quit on himself. And Jake Collier is one of these guys that keeps coming forward, keeps throwing combination, keeps backing you up. If he searches for a takedown, great. If he gets a takedown and he gets on top of Barnett, Barnett will belly down, give up the rear naked choke, say, thanks for uh, coming, give me my show money, I'm out of here, right? So I got Collier inside the distance, but beyond that, if you want to get cheeky with it, Collier by submission plus 600, it's not so much he's a great submission artist as much as the guy he's fighting likes to quit when he gets tired and ends up on the ground. So like, I, I just feel like at plus 600, it's got a decent enough shot at hitting. And again, even if he doesn't choke him out, he's just going to overwhelm him with volume and then Barnett's got one of two choices. I can either sit here and get punched in the face a hundred times, or I can throw down. If I throw down, I'm going to get gassed out. And when I get gassed out, then I'm going to get finished. If I don't throw down with him and I just allow him to chip away at me, I'm going to get tired and then I'm going to get finished. So 
I just got a feeling Collier puts him way inside the distance. Now, my last thing is I know what you're saying. Man, people love betting the Collier by decision because the guy's more of a decision guy. And outside of the one fight with Chase Sherman where he showed a lot of ring IQ, just dumping Chase Sherman to the ground, getting on top of him, smashing him with ground and pound, and then getting the choke. But all the same, ah, you know what I mean? He's not finishing guys. Well, who is he not finishing? His guys are Tom Aspinall, right? Uh, Carlos Felipe, Andre Arlovsky. Like, they're a lot better than Chris Barnett. All those guys are much better than Chris Barnett. They're guys that have been there. They've done that. Barnett, they signed him because, you know, he's fun. He's fun, fun, but he hasn't really been, like, just, again, look at his record, okay? Okay. So the win, what got him to the UFC? Oh, win over this Ahmed Tajani Shihu, who was 0-0. Oh, shit. Well, what about before that? It's like, oh, yeah, well, he actually did bare-knuckle boxing against Matt Kovacs. If you know Matt Kovacs, you know what's up. Like, holy fuck, why are you wasting your time bare-knuckle boxing Matt Kovacs? Because his career's not going anywhere. He had a kickboxing match. He lost to Terrence Hodge. He fought Tony Lopez, who was in his mid-40s. He had a split decision over Rashawn Jackson. And that brings you all back to 2019. What's the most notable? Let me put you on the spot. What's the biggest win of his career outside of the Jean Vellante fight? Who the guy's retiring and forty pounds overweight? Does he have a good win? I'd have to. I'd have to look at his record. Um, I won't bother you, right? Because it's like it's a lot. I would say Travis U, maybe of Travis U that can't take a punch. But yeah, it's like he's a he weighed three hundred thirty pounds and he was five foot nine. And the motherfucker could do a backflip, right? <laughs> Back in those XFC days, because we played XFC at Fight Network. Shout out to Tim Loy and, and uh, all the guys down uh, down you know Tennessee representing. But uh, yeah, they, Fight uh, Network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fight Network used to play XFC. Those guys used to help out with like the promotion side of it. And uh, yeah, it was like he was a fun, entertaining character, right? He was a training partner for Alistair Overeem for years, and Overeem is on record being like, "Yeah, we would bring the guy in." and be like lie on top of Overeem and he's going to try to get back up because we'd bring out a scale and the dude weighed 340 pounds, 350 pounds, right? It was just, just a character. They call him Huggy Bear for a reason. You know, he does his little dance. He's a very athletic guy for that size. And again, Taekwondo black belt, but there's no substance beyond that. Right. And that's all well and good, but I feel like uh, at the UFC level, Collier is making improvements. He is getting better. He's six foot three versus the five foot nine. He's going to be able to wear on him. He's going to be able to lean on him. If he takes him down, it's game over. If he doesn't take him down, I still think he's going to chip away at him. So Huggy Bear could land a spinning hook kick. He could land a spinning back fist. He could land one of those, those big spectacular one-shot strikes that puts Collier down, but that's way easier said than done. So at 36 years old, I just I never thought he was really uh, like a legitimate competitor to begin with, as much of a side attraction. And, and again, it's just I don't see it getting any better for him. Yeah, exactly. I, I think he nailed it in terms of the side attraction type of thing. The guy's fun to watch. The guy dances on his way to the cage and all that stuff. So maybe that's why they initially brought him in. But uh, yeah, Collier should be able to put the hammer on him here. Uh, possibly get him out of there. I, I'm hoping, you know, as a Jake Collier fan myself, I hope he puts on a statement and gets him out of there as well. All right. Let's get to the next fight. Actually, I do think we... No, we don't. I thought we had a uh, cloud bet prop for this one, but we don't. Maybe we could do one if uh, if uh, Huggy Bear pulls off a black backflip or something at a certain point in this fight. Yeah, or like something like, uh, you know, who can put down more plates at the buffet after the fight? <laughs> live stream it. Live stream it. It would be competitive, but I got to feel like Chris Barnett is live in that spot. Yeah. Not live on the Saturday fight spot. <laughs> But live at the buffet afterwards, dude. That guy can put it down. 
<laughs> Maybe Jay Collier will give him a run for his money. Jay Collier was like, you put it down too. <laughs> the direction the dude moved from middleweight. Hey, it's a lot of work getting up to 266 after you weighed 170 at a certain time in your life. Yeah, the best meme, it's one of the best MMA memes I've ever seen. There's so many good MMA memes, but it was like your Tinder profile picture. It's him at middleweight. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like in real it. life, it's like him versus Aspinall. It's like, yeah. oh, shit, dude. It. That in life. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We got three fights left on the prelims, the next of which might be the pee break of the day. But we got Jamie Pickett going up against T Dennis uh, Tululian. In terms of odds, we're looking at minus 130 for Pickett, plus 110 to return on Tululian. God damn, I'm just going to stick with Dennis. But uh, I'm not a big fan of either guy here, right? Like, I, I tried giving Dennis some props in his last fight against uh, Kizriev. You know, uh, I, I bet on him in the sense of I took the over one and a half in that fight, right? I, it was something crazy. I think it was like plus 180 because everybody expected Kizriev to get him out of there within the first two minutes of that fight. And I'm like, hey, it's it's a little bit difficult to take this guy out, right? Uh, a guy, you know, uh, I'm trying to remember the guy's name here. Let me pull it up real quick. But there was a guy that Dennis fought that was a great fighter, good grappling, but it took him into the third round. Uh, Ikram yeah. Alice Karov. And I believe that guy's actually fighting on the contender. Yeah, the guy that guy's fighting on the contender series upcoming as well. But his only loss was Hamzat Shmaev. But in regards to Dennis, you know, he stayed in that fight for pretty long and, you know, made it to the third round, which is where he eventually got finished. And then in the Kizria fight, he couldn't hold on for another 32 seconds to cast that over one and a half for me. But, you know, close enough. I'll take it as a consolation win that I even made it into the second round, as a lot of people didn't expect him to that night. Good striker, big guy. You know, recently over the last couple of years, he moved over to Extreme Couture. Uh, one of the main training partners of Sean Strickland. Uh, you see him in Sean Strickland's corner as well for his last couple of fights. Uh, so he's very much involved with the coaching staff and being close with the main guys there. But like, I just don't know if his talent is going to translate over to the UFC. He's a good kickboxer, good power, not the greatest cardio and that's kind of where it starts to come down for him. Jamie Pickett, on the other hand, uh, you know, I think he has a pretty much the same archetype as a female fighter that we're going to be talking about later on this card. But if similar in the aspect that they just use their 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 physical attributes more than their actual technical skills, right? They use their size, they use their strength. That's what allows them to go out there and get these wins. And that's what Jamie Pickett has been successful in doing in you know fights against Jamie Malarkey. Or sorry, yeah, not Jamie Malarkey. Sorry, yeah, Joseph Holmes and uh the fight before that against Loriana Storopoli. They're just grinding them out in these uh clinch situations. He could absolutely do that here against Dennis, right? More often than not, um Jamie Pickett is quite durable. The one time he got finished by by punches was Jordan Wright, but that was off of him, you know, Hail Mary, uh, sorry, uh, going for desperation takedown against Jordan Wright. And Jordan Wright's like, oh, you're just going to let me Travis Brown style elbow you until you fucking fall down? Sure, I'll do that. And he did that. Jamie Pickett gets out of that situation, gets followed up, and eventually gets finished there. But outside of that, has shown solid durability. So I think he'll be able to take the big shots of Dennis here. I think this fight will go over. I think this fight will go the distance as well, which is why I don't mind a shot on the over two and a half around minus 140. Even the fight to go to decision at minus 110. Like I said at the top of the breakdown here, I don't think Dennis's uh, cardio is the greatest, but it's not like Jamie Pickett's working him down to the ground to, to get him out of there, right? If he was one of those guys that really picks it up later in fights and gets them out of there, he would have got Joseph Holmes out of there, but he was not able to, right? Right. Like that's that's kind of kind of what I'm talking about here with the 
with the Jamie Pickett side. So I still think Pickett wins. I would not get caught, you know, playing him at chalk though. Minus 130 is just not for me. I would rather play the fight to go to decision at minus 110 as I expect him to go out there and grind this fight out and get that decision victory. If you do want Pickett by decision, that's currently sitting around plus 240. But just give me fight, goes to decision, or the over two and a half. What are your thoughts here? You think Dennis is live or do you think Jamie Pickett does Jamie Pickett things? Dennis is live because of the way he fights. He likes to throw down. A lot of his wins come by a first-round knockout, so he could catch Pickett. I'm going to agree with your assessment. Pickett is durable. The one time he gets knocked out was Jordan Wright, and it's the only time of his career, but he got hit with some pretty fairly big shots against Defon and Jaqui and showed that he had good chin there. Again, never been finished prior. Hasn't been finished since the Jordan Wright fight. If he's got that durability and he can shake those punches, roll with them in that first round, start to tire Dennis down, yeah, I think it's just going to be leaning on him, which is what he does, which is his path to victory. It, when you look at Dennis's career, right, so the Cruzia fight in the UFC obviously gets taken down multiple times, but, like, a takedown defense looked not very good. That fight with Ikram Askarov that you mentioned, uh, same thing. The fight with John Petrick, same thing. Ruslan Shamalov, same thing. That fight he got rear naked choke against Mubremchko, Mubremchkanov, what a weird name, by the way. Uh <laughs> Magomed is laughing as Magomedov. Let's just name him Magomed. All right, dude. He'll be a badass. I can assure you that. But anyways, it seems like takedown defense has kind of always been a problem for him. Yes, he does get the kickboxing, but if you can't stuff the takedown, it's going to be a problem. Pickett, meanwhile, isn't a very good wrestler. But yeah, that he used it against Darapoli, used it against Joseph Holmes. When he doesn't get the takedown, what he does is lean on you against the cage, right? Try to tire you out in these clinch exchanges. And with Dennis, he's got weak cardio. So if Dennis gets taken down, which is definitely a possibility, it'd be troublesome because he's going to lose rounds. If Dennis doesn't get taken down, but he just gets leaned on and controlled against the cage, he'll tire. And when he tires, he's going to start throwing less offense. Maybe gets taken down. Maybe just gets sloppy and lose rounds. So... I would think Pickett, but yeah, Pickett's got a losing record in the UFC. I think he's one fight below 500 for a reason, man. He beats on like low level guys and he loses to, you know, okay, maybe fairly low level guys as well. Like, I don't know that the super upside's there for Pickett, but a stylistical clash likely does favor him in this spot. The play that I like the most, you nailed it, bike goes the distance, right? I feel if Pickett can do what he does best, which is lean on him. That's what he'll do all night. Get takedowns, lean on. He's not going to finish Dennis. If Dennis wins, probably more of a knockout. But as we both talked about, we're kind of, we like the durability on Pickett. Got knocked out one time. Let's chalk it up as shit happens in MMA. And hopefully, you know, he's still durable enough to get through this one. So fight goes the distance, minus 110. You cover both sides. I like it. But if I was trying to get greedy and I was picking Pickett, but I didn't like the minus 130, then I'd just take Pickett by decision, which is plus 200, right? So it's a decent enough price tag considering we both agree we think the fight goes the distance. If Pickett wins, we both agree that we think Pickett would win a decision. His style is not throwing big head kicks. It's not, you know, uh, trying to drown you with ground and pound. It's not, you know, pedal to the metal the whole time. It's just like positional soundness. I was actually shocked watching back and then checking out the fight metric numbers, but like Pickett controlled Joseph Holmes and Staropoli fairly easily. But in the Staropoli fight, he's got like three minutes of control time. In the Holmes fight, he has maybe like less control time than Holmes had in it. So it's not like he's getting a whole lot of control time with these takedowns. It's just he's not getting hit. He's pressing them back against the cage. He's neutralizing them. It looks better to the judges. So I would say Pickett wins, but this one's one that I got a lot lower on the list of priorities because. I'm not sure what to expect, right? And also the way a lot of fights have been getting judged lately is like if Pickett just holds Dennis up against the cage the whole time and maybe lands a takedown or two, but Dennis lands a few eye-catching bombs, who are they scoring the round to, right? You don't know anymore. Used to be control, 
Now they're favoring damage. So it's probably more of a stay away fight, if anything. But the best prop on it, I think I'm just going to go fight goes the distance, minus 110. I'm glad we're on the same boat in terms of that. Um, all right. <clears throat> a voice starting to go. So we're going to keep sludging really? on through yeah. this. Next up, we're going to be talking about uh, the everybody's darling, Jilton Almeida, going up against short notice Anton Turkalj. Ter uh, I'm going to butcher that, so I'll stick with Anton there. But uh, in terms of odds, obvious chalk on the Almeida side coming in at minus 660, plus 490 the return on Anton. Now, Anton fought on week one of the contender series this season, but did not get the contract. Luckily for him, Shamil Abdurahimov pulls out of the fight this weekend and in steps Anton. Uh, you know, luckily for him, he, he gets the short notice call up here. Pretty much a hazing to get into the UFC, right? Just to be like, hey, take the short notice fight. We'll give you another one after that. But just take this fight to at least allow Jilton to fight this weekend. Jilton, big, strong, you know, intimidating, uh, is able to get guys to the ground, smash them on the mat, wait for a submission opportunity, and then he's able to take it away uh, or, or get them out of there. Uh, and then on the Anton side, uh, big dude as well with some solid grappling chops of his own. Like, out of all the opponents that Jelton has faced up until this point, Anton may be the livest to actually pull off the upset in this spot because of the skill set that he has with his grappling and his wrestling as well. And the cardio advantage he's obviously going to have in this fight. So if he can survive that first round, I think he could absolutely make this a little bit uh, liver the later that this fight goes. So, but like, I do think that Jelton will likely smash him in that first round and get him out of there. Uh, Almeida round one currently sitting at even money, minus 110, plus 105 at certain places. But like this is for me, like I'm not looking to bet this fight at all until like the live betting. Like I will look to live bet Anton going into round three, as long as he doesn't look like he's nearly dead going into round two, right? Like uh, if he goes into round two and he still has his wits about him and has shown some solid resistance, I think he could, you know, take advantage of the scary beast that is Jilton Almeida in this spot. But I think a lot of Jelton's success needs to come early in this fight because if he gets into that second or third round, I think the the grappling edge won't be as wide. I think Anton will be able to stay competitive in those spots. So prop and pick is going to be Almeida round one, but uh, I think this is a lot sketchier than most people think it's going to be considering the image that Jilton, has, uh, Jilton Almeida has painted for himself over his last couple fights. But I still think he gets it done. What about yourself here? Yeah, I mean, Jelton Almeida is everyone's baby. You've seen the guy, the guy's just ripped, man. He looks like a G.I. Joe, a right. Brazilian G.I action figure imagine gi joe on brazilian supplements how big would he have been this big dude this guy is big <laughs> shredded up when you look at him on the uh ultimate sorry on him on the contender series uh against nasruddin nasruddinov there's another one why'd you name your kid that man what the fuck <laughs> did you have to name him nasruddin that's a legitimate roster big strong scary guy got to take down on gelatin early imelda powers up and then all of a sudden he just turns the tide puts the pressure on it's a great performance it's one that immediately dana wise like whoa we're signing this guy and people across the board are like yeah this guy could have some legitimate potential like he could be someone that goes out there and is an actual contender at 205 pounds why is he fighting on heavyweight i have no idea but against Parker Porter, uh, I'll just add this. I'll, I'll add this quickly in terms of as to why. Apparently, nobody wants to fight him at 205 pounds, and he felt as though fighting at heavyweight, he can fight whenever he wants, doesn't have to cut any weight, and that's where it's easiest for him to get fights. Nobody wants to fight him at 205, and I completely understand why. Sorry, continue. Yeah, that would that would make sense. That would make sense because it's like, uh, why are you deciding if Parker Porter is like 260 pounds? He's 265, I think, right? And then yeah, Shamil Abdurakhimov, if memory serves, is like. 
258 or 259. So it's not like it's not like he's just taking on some heavyweights. He's taking on like the max size of heavyweights. Parker Porter is very limited as he is, and he is very limited. He just buzzsawed right through him, which is impressive enough as it is. So now he's at a full camp for this one, taking on Shamil Adrakimov. You know you're taking on a big guy. I just feel like he's going to be in a better position than Anton, who is it's like the polar opposite. He has a fight on contender series. He scored nine takedowns. Dana White sat cage side. And then afterwards, it's like, this guy's no finishing ability. Don't want him in the UFC. Because it, it didn't make sense to me at first. If you're Anton, you're Anton's coach. It's okay. He's undefeated. He's 8-0, right? So why would you take a fight on short notice up a motherfucking weight class, right? Does that make any sense? But it's because he didn't get signed to the UFC. What are your options now? Do you want to go fight back on the European regional scene for, for two grand, two grand, maybe three grand and three grand? Brave, they got that Middle Eastern money. You go out there, you get a six and six. If you're good, you get an eight and eight with Brave. But like, where's the longevity here? No one's going to see you. There's no marketability. There's no sponsors. You do the UFC a favor. Come in here, fight Almeida. If you win, huge. If you lose, not that big of a deal because then the UFC never signs you to a one-fight deal. Well, they have. Well, no, no, no. They'll sign you to a four-fight deal and cut you after one. That's super rare. The main thing is you sign a four-fight deal. You did them a favor. They'll bring you back. And for Anton, the pleasure man, I would think that's the move. It's just get this fight out of the way and then you can come back. However, it's not necessarily that easy, man. All the things you said, I'm glad you brought them up because I saw the same thing. It's like, I would say Anton's a better wrestler than Almeida. And so for whatever reason, if he goes out there and dictates the takedowns and takes them down, and weighs on him and controls him, it's going to get greasy, man. Almeida's got a ton of muscle on him. So it wouldn't be crazy to think that this guy's going to gas out if it hits a late second, maybe into a third round. Could happen, right? The other thing is Almeida's shown takedown defense, maybe not great. Here's the other problem. He won on the contender series, looked awesome. Then he beat Daniel Marquez in his debut, looked pretty good. He takes this submission five, submission circus five uh, match, right? The guy he lost to, Rene Pessoa, is a middleweight, right? The dude weighs 185 pounds. And he took his back and Rene could choke him in two and a half minutes into the first. So that's a bad fucking look, man. I don't know how good his grappling is. I don't know how good his wrestling is. I just know he's built like a brick shithouse, and they've matched him up against Daniil Marquez and Parker Porter. So he's looked good. I think he wins this fight, but a minus 800. God. Damn. So what I went with, uh, what I went with as a flyer is I went with the uh, Jelton Almeida by knockout, a plus 300. The reason why I did that is he does show a couple knockouts here and there. Everyone's expecting him to get the submission, but keep in mind, Anton's been competing in grappling tournaments lately and Almeida's submission game good, but perhaps not great. But uh, Anton's standing doesn't move his head, like, at all. Like, he's he's there to get hit. And Almeida, as big and strong as he is, I feel like he's going to have a power advantage standing. If you want to go out there and grapple with him the entire time, it's going to be fatiguing. If you want to just keep him at distance and clonk him with something big over the top, I think it's going to be very, you know, very effective. I think he could knock him out standing, even though he's not known for his stand-up skills, because he has the advantage. If the fight does hit the ground and Anton's not giving you a neck, you need to just keep pounding away and try to get that. All I'm saying is it's live to occur, and at plus 300, seems like uh, seems like it's worth a shot of sorts. But it's, most of that is because the money line is just way off. If you gave me Almeida minus 220, I'm on it. You give me Almeida 275, I'm on it. You give me Almeida 450, that's kind of the most I would possibly even consider this shit. And I didn't like that. I wouldn't like that at all. Mm-hmm. But 800, God damn. Especially the way MMA's been going lately. Come on.
man. You don't think he's going to slip on a fucking banana peel and blow out his meniscus? It keeps happening. Uh, Anyways, hopefully all the bad juju's out of the air and Almeida does get the victory. But at minus 800, yeah. There's certain spots you don't want to get overexposed in. And it's low-level heavyweights. This is technically a low-level fucking cruiserweight fight. Can we call it a cruiserweight fight? Well, they just changed the name. Is it a... (laughs) Not a bridge weight. Uh, fuck. They just made a weight class in boxing for it. Terrible. Terrible. Anyways, they're basically hanging at that 220 range. They're not really heavyweights. They're not really light heavyweights. But what I'm saying is it could get greasy. It could be a little all over the place. I don't know that I would want Almeida on my top ticket because I do recognize that Anton may have a wrestling advantage. But it's not enough for me to pick Anton out straight up. You did have a half unit shot on Danielle Wolf, which is just like a YOLO. I would think this would be a better spot to have the half unit shot on because I think he's got a better chance of winning than Daniel Wolf and it pays a lot better than Daniel Wolf. But um, you did a good job because it's like, what's the other greasier side than middling heavyweights? <laughs> so you might as well take your flyer on that. I don't fault you at all there, buddy. Dude, uh, Anton round two plus 2,000, Anton round three plus 2,800. You could even get all the way up to plus 4,000 if anybody believes Almeida truly does have a gas tank issue, which I do think he does. I would just hate to bet those and then end up, you know, getting uh, Anton to win by decision. But even that is sitting at plus 1,600. So even just spreading out small action amongst Anton round two, Anton round three, and Anton decision, if it comes through, that's likely how he ends up winning those fights. So uh yeah very interesting fight could be the night that we see almeida get slightly exposed but i still do think that he goes out there and gets that early finish in this spot all right let's move on to i believe the prelim headliner here yes it is the prelim headliner and we have a fellow canadian representing himself in the cage here we got mean hakeem duwadu going up against julian arosa in terms of odds, we're looking at minus 225 for Duadu and plus 190, the return on Julian Arosa. Should be a fun striking battle. And uh, I, I think that's where the, the rubber meets road here for uh, the Hakeem side, as I just think he's the much more disciplined fighter. You know what I mean? He never really overextends himself. I almost have like this weird theory in my head that like, he might have overextended himself a little bit in his UFC debut against Danny Henry and paid for it. And since then has just been like, you know what? Stick to the basics. Don't get overzealous. Throw your combinations. Always be where you need to be. Know where you are in terms of range and don't overextend and try not to get countered too much. And that has worked wonders for him outside of when he fights a guy like Movzar Evloev. But luckily for him, he does not have Movzar Evloev opposite of the cage of him this weekend. He has Julian Arosa, veteran striker who has a sneaky submission game at times but given his poor striking defense i think he's going to get touched up quite often in this fight and i think we see hakeem beat him to the punch pretty much every single time you know hakeem at times i feel like he's a little bit small for this weight class given sometimes he's at a height disadvantage or reach disadvantage which he is here but he showed in the mike trezano fight that that doesn't matter he can close the distance he can eventually find that chin his speed his accuracy and his combination work allow those things to really uh open up the rest of his uh, uh his combination striking game um duwadu duwadu by decision is probably the way to go here that currently sits at plus 140 considering that duwadu is not much of a finisher nowadays um kind of be the way to go and i'm just going to quickly look it up here cody but i'm pretty sure the last time he finished somebody actually yeah it was actually yeah yashinori or yoshinori hori he finished him with oh, one man wow. left yeah Beat him uh, up for a while. Right? Yeah, he, he whooped on him for a while and then eventually got that finish late in that third round. But before that, oh, I don't know why I thought his last 
finish before all of that was uh, Mike Malott, where he finished and where I was hyping the fuck out of Mike Malott going into that fight to my boys. I'm like, watch out for this kid. This kid's going to destroy the, whoever this Hakeem kid is. And Hakeem just, like, uh. start just immediately. That was back in 2014 on WSOF 14. But no, uh, Hakeem should cruise in this fight. You know, Julian been all over the cage or sorry, been all over the world in terms of fighting. Uh, this is going to be his 37th professional MMA fight. We know what his ceiling is and Hakeem Dawadu is above that ceiling. So give me Hakeem, Hakeem by decision. What do you, oh, actually I'll tee this up to you uh, in terms of the special cloud bet prop that they have for this matchup. Total combined significant strikes between the two over under 140 and a half. Combined strikes landed between the two, 140 and a half? Yep, over under. Uh, I mean, I would number, take, right? yeah, that's I would a good number. Over, but it depends like what version of Hakeem shows up. Because if he's a defensive Marvel, then Arosa will have lower numbers and Hakeem will have lower numbers. But the Trezano fight is the outlier because it's like he's never gone out and landed volume in a fight. And 141, he hit the number all by himself, right? So. I'm going to say the over because, like you, I think the fight actually does go the distance. I think that Julian Arosa is going to try to pressure him and try to make it a fight, but it's Hakeem's just too slick. I mean, he's an excellent counterpuncher. I feel like he's starting to fill into himself and feel a lot more confident. And it's taken a while for him to kind of excel, but I think it's the low numbers. Like him versus Julio Arce, he lands 55. It's a big win over Julio Arce for sure. It was just kind of a dull fight. And then him versus Zuber Tahugov, he lands 69, but... If you remember the fight, split decision win for Akeem. Should have won, by the way. Very dull. Not a very good fight. Him versus Mamzar Evloev. People will remember it for an absolute trucking, right? Mamzar wins the first round 10-9. Takedowns. Mamzar 10-8s him in the second round with takedowns. Hakeem Duwadu beats the shit out of Mamzar Evloev in the third round. They landed him 31-17 or something, backing him up. Kids on skates. Kid shoots a couple takedowns. Hakeem just shucks him off. It's like, where the hell has this guy been all fight? But it's like you're feeling yourself. Yeah, I got taken down, but I didn't get submitted. Yeah, I got taken down, but I got back up. This guy's hitting me with his best shots. I don't even feel it. Walk him down. You got mean written across your chest. You're mean, Hakeem. Get back to that. And against Trezano, Trezano's a, a come-forward pressure fighter. So he went at Hakeem Duwadu, and as a result, surgical performance, Duwadu just picks him apart. To me, it's the same thing with Arosa. Arosa could get knocked out because in the past, his chin hasn't been very good. But, uh, but I agree. I think his not his chin's gotten better, just he's, I don't know, he takes a punch a lot better these days than he used to. Whatever the hell Andrei Arlovsky's taking to help his chin out, Arosa's on the same thing, right? <laughs> guys are chinny by the numbers, yeah. but have also taken some fucking big shots lately and, and lift to tell the tale, right? But he's got volume. He tries to swarm. He tries to pressure. His wrestling, not good enough to take down Hakeem Duwadu. I realize Evloev did, but Julian Arosa won't. Uh, Hakeem Duwadu's got excellent takedown defense. You look at the majority of his career, a lot of these guys, he just sprawled and brawled. So I don't think he's getting taken down. I think it's going to be a striker's delight. Hakeem's got to have the volume. The leg kick's going to use uh, be very effective because Arosa's got a lot of movement. He also has big, long legs and uh, tends to stand flat-footed in front of you at times. So I feel like Hakeem chops down the leg, tries to demobilize him the best that he can, land those shots. If I had never seen the Steven Peterson fight, I'd be like, dude, Rosa's got that dog in him. You know what I mean? He, with the way he went after Charles Jourdain, like maybe he can tire out Hakeem and make it a crazy battle. But literally one fight later, he struggled tooth and nail against Steve Peterson and almost lost. Like that's MMA, man. You can look at paper. You can look at what they've done in, the, in their past. 
but you don't know what shape they are going into the fight. You don't know if he's got a blown out knee. You don't know if he's got a bum shoulder. Chad Enelledger on his last fight says all these injuries. Lupita Godinez throws a terrible performance against Angela Hill, never even tries to take her down. But, oh, while well, I'm hurt. But you don't know that shit. That's what makes it dangerous. The best version of Rosa shows up, it'd be fun. I still think Hakeem wins. If a middle version of, of uh, Orosa shows up, I think Hakeem just takes his lunch money. So uh, in both scenarios, me and Hakeem gets the job done, moves forward. So uh, I'm going to take him. There's a Canadian that me and Cody finally agree upon. He is a minus 220 favorite, though, so it is what it is. But he should go out there and win this fight. All right. And, and sorry, we do both agree that he wins by decision. So make sure you guys go take a look at that plus 140 if you can get that. All right. That is a wrap on the prelims. Shout out to the 120 live viewers that we currently have hanging with us on this Thursday evening. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe below if you haven't already. Let the guys over at the All-Star know that you appreciate us on their channel. Also, check out betonline.ag. If you ever want to bet MMA and there's no UFC on, BetOnline normally has a spot for you to go and bet some money on to see two guys punch each other in the face and try to win some money. So make sure you guys go check out BetOnline.ag. And secondly, shout out to CloudBet as well. We've been sprinkling in their special props that they specifically do for this show. We got a couple more fun ones coming up on the main card here that I can't wait to get into. So without taking too much time, let's get right into this goddamn thing. First uh, fight on the main card. We're going to be talking about Johnny Walker going up against Iwan Kutelaba in terms of odds. We're currently looking at minus 195 for Iwan Kutelaba and plus 165 the return on Johnny Walker. Very intriguing fight here, Cody. You know why Iwan Kutelaba is pretty much a minus 200. Um, minus why? 200. No, I, I, I don't know why. Don't I don't know why. know why. No, no, no. He's being the favorite, big favorite for Ian Kudalaba, Mister. I'll fuck it up for myself. Uh, what I'm saying is the reason he's up there and the public is actually, you know, some people are actually betting him there is they think that Johnny Walker's chin is gone. That's all it is. That minus 200 is based on Ewan throws with bombs. Johnny Walker could get knocked out. That's it. People Fair. put way too much stock on that, right? That's why he's minus 200. Now. Is he worth minus 200 is a different question. And that's where I'll agree with you that, no, he should not be minus 200 in this spot. Even if he goes out there and has a complete performance like he did against Devin Clark a couple fights ago by mixing in takedowns and just grinding him out, I still don't know if that's enough for him to look minus 200 in this spot. Now, the big question mark is, if he gets Johnny Walker to the ground, can he control him? I don't think so, right? I think that it's going to be difficult for him to hold him down just as it was difficult for him to hold Ryan Spann down. He got Ryan Spann to the ground three times in two and a half minutes, but still manages to lose that fight because Ryan Spann's able to get to his feet pretty quickly after each time he got taken down and then he was able to finish him with the guillotine choke, his patented guillotine choke. Now, Johnny Walker... Big motherfucker for this weight class. Going to be very difficult for Iwan Kutalaba to hold him down. Nikita Krilov, much better overall grappler than Iwan Kutalaba, struggled to hold Johnny Walker to the mat uh, in certain spots, especially that second round. So even if Iwan lands takedowns here, I don't think he holds him down. I think Johnny Walker gets back to his feet, and I think he can make this a lot closer a fight than the odds indicate. However, I just cannot, I cannot trust that chin of Johnny Walker especially with the amount of power that you want Kutalaba throws with. So, no, I'm not touching minus 200 Kutalaba, but I wouldn't mind it. Well, 
even as KO prop, it's minus 110. Not good enough, but I think that is the ultimate result of this fight. Johnny Walker is absolutely live in this spot, and I can completely understand why people are expecting uh, or actually taking the shot on Johnny Walker here at Big Dog Odds. But in terms of mine, I'm staying away from this fight. I think it's going to end up with Kutalaba starching him early in that first round, um, but this fight could go either way. I'll throw this on over to you, Cody, with two special club bet props, the first of which significant strike uh spread here is minus 12 and a half strikes for Iwan Kutelaba or plus 12 and a half strikes for Johnny Walker. And then on the other side, total knockdowns over under one and a half for both guys combined. So let's start off with the significant strike spread. Do you think Iwan Kutelaba at the end of the day has more than 12 and a half strikes landed on Johnny Walker? I would, I would take the plus on Johnny Walker to cover that 12. Is it 12 straight gap 12 in favor of, yeah, I mean, 12 and a half. I would take it again. When you look at Johnny, Johnny Walker versus Hill, he has struck him 12 to six him versus Santos. He has struck him by four, right? Him versus Ryan Spann. Well, he's obviously all over him. Him versus Krylov. Krylov outstrikes him by eight, right? It never gets blown out of the water other than the Corey Anderson fight, which is a very weird fight. But, um, yeah, for the most part, like the striking numbers are usually close. And the thing with Kudalaba is if he's going to win the striking exchanges, he's just going to knock him out, right? So it's not like he's going to hit him 30 times, create that 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 gap, and then knock him out. It's like he might hit him five times and knock him out. And then what's the stri- what's what's the number going to be? Oh, well, one guy landed three, the other guy landed five. Okay. Yeah, I, agree. It's, it's I, not I believe it is. Yeah, they, I believe it's a little bit wide. Yeah, creating that gap is like sustained beating. You gotta you gotta put it on a guy. You gotta continuously march him down and land some shots. So, you know, for every two punches you land, he lands one. Okay, well then it's gonna take quite a few exchanges for you to get to that number. Walker's got the volume. Walker's got the range. If he stays at the outside, which I think he will, listen, he's six foot six with an 82 inch reach. Okay. Freakish. Ian Kudlob is six foot one with 75 inch reach. So he's giving up five inches in height. He's giving up six inches in reach. Now, that's also important here because we're not in the fucking apex. We're in the T-Mobile. It's going to be the big cage. They're going to be able to dance around. And Walker's not the same guy he was before. He used to try to knock guys out in the first round, have some thrilling fight, do the worm afterwards, dislocate his own shoulder, and then call it a night. Now, since he's been over with John Kavanaugh, he sucks, but his style is way different, right? He's likes to stay to the outside and faint. You win your fight, you, you're going to win the fight with your feints. That's not how you win a fight. What the fuck? You gotta hit the guy. You gotta hit the guy. What do you mean you're gonna win the fight with your feints? Oh, dude. <laughs> but he gets married. He marries an Irish girl, right? And he's happy and he's he's down there. He's looked like absolute shit. And I keep hoping he's gonna change camps, but he doesn't. And then, uh, you know, why does Johnny Walker look different? Could you blame it on John Kamenik? And then, boom, today, it all comes to light. Dude was smoking marijuana. And it just apparently <laughs> just drugged him. Just drugged him. I'm living in a motherfucking haze. I don't know how you can blame your problems on that. But whatever. I, whatever. Maybe hey, you're going to see a on new how much version. Smoking. Is that, was this guy Tommy Chong uh, You know, during camp, or was this guy just hitting it occasionally? Well, you know what? I mean, we got a card headlined by Nate Diaz, who's quite <laughs> literally all the time. And he's not bad. Nick Diaz, he's not bad. You see guys, not bad. Matt Riddle. Remember Matt Riddle? He'd win. Yeah. And then they'd overturn to a no contest. So then he'd win again. Yeah. And they'd overturn that to a no contest. And now he's making millions of dollars as a pro wrestler. By the way, uh, my wife and I went to London, Ontario. They're having like some Sunday night heat. Uh, oh, wow. Before, cause, yeah, because Raw was in Toronto on the Monday. This is like a week ago, two weeks ago. And uh, dude, Matt Riddle is 
fucking legit. First of all, he wrestles barefoot, which he's always done, which is like only him and Jimmy Snook could do that because it, you have to be extremely tough. But man, he's he's a total package. He's good on the yeah. mic, well, like he's okay on the mic, but the kids love it. But uh, physically, beast. Athleticism, beast. He can slam you. He can jump off the ropes. He's got submissions. He works it. Uh, you know, he can take a chair shot of the head. They don't let you do that anymore. He put a guy through a table. Like he's the complete package. Yeah, that shit never slowed him down. <laughs> I don't know that Johnny Walker can just blame all. I think it's a cop out. Him. It's a cop out. That's yeah, but, but I don't. I don't like when guys make up excuses unless it's like legit. You know, I hurt myself. You know, geez, or you know what, man, I was going through a divorce in my last couple of fights. I moved to Ireland. I don't have anybody here. I meet this girl and she leaves me. Now I'm stuck in this gym. I don't know. There's no big guys at SPG Ireland. Are you kidding me? Who's he training with? Patty Holohan? Nashling Daly? You realize everybody else is left there, Daly. right? Wow. What a <laughs> yeah. throwback, bro. <laughs> Paul Pendridge, right? You hanging out with them? Chris the Killing Field? I'm pretty sure he opened up his own gym. Like, so, and then, oh, wow. Well, you know. Shit. Right. And then it's like, oh, well, fighters like to sometimes go there. It's like, oh, yeah. Like, Maquan Amirakani, Brad Katona, Hakeem Dawadi went there for a little bit, didn't work out. There's no big boys over there, man. That is extremely concerning to me because you're not going to fight anything but these big, strong guys. So, yeah, listen, a lot of it's all worrisome to me. But when I look at Kudalaba, it's like, okay, here's a guy that conceivably has one win in his last three years. He is one, three, and one over that stretch, and he just makes a ton of mistakes. Uh, you give him a pass on both Magomed and Kaliyev fights for sure. But just keep yeah. in mind, Magomed and Kaliyev, not really known for his finishing, is he, right? He's kind of methodical and takes that smart approach. And yet the first time, maybe it's a bad stop. It's just Kudalaba is clearly faking it. But uh, whatever, stop the fight. He's getting his ass kicked for the record. But he, he was maybe faking the being hurt part a little bit. That's fine. The next one against Magomed and Kaliyev, he just gets intercepted every step of the way. Bigger, stronger, longer, light heavyweights are going to do that to him. He's got the frame of a 185-pounder. He should move down to 185 pounds. Instead, he wants to fight these guys. He wants to fight the big guys. He wants to throw down. The Dustin Jacoby fight's a draw because one, well, you could make an argument that he scored a 10-8 round, right? That's the argument, is that Kudalaba probably 10-8 rounded Dustin Jacoby in the first. If it wasn't enough damage to get a 10-8 round, it was a 10-8 round because Dustin Jacoby grabbed the fence five times, so he deserved to get a 10-8. But the second and the third, man, it's Kudalaba. It's all Kudal or it's all Jacoby. He tires him out. One second, let me just... <laughs> Can you quiet the fuck down? On that? <laughs> yeah, that's the like, Canadian toy right there. <laughs> yeah, well, I can't turn my mic off. Be like, it's just no, tinfoil okay. racket in the background. I'm sure, I don't know if you guys can hear, but it's fucking me oh, up. I, I was hear. like, what? Good. Hey, yeah, I was thinking if I can hear it that it wasn't bad, super loud though, but it was there. It was crinkling in my ear and starting to piss me off. <laughs> but uh, anyways, Kudalaba got tired after the second and the third round of the Jacoby fight because he puts a lot of energy into the first round. That's how he fights. He's very yeah. he's a wild man. I will admit in the fight with Devin Clark, his wrestling looked better than it ever has. His cardio looked better than it ever has. He looked like he was trending in a positive direction. And then the Ryan Span fight is the same shit. He just overexerts himself. He scores three takedowns in the first 90 seconds of the fight. Tires himself out, and then Johnny Walker puts him away. Or not Johnny Walker. Uh, Brian Spann puts him away. So there's a part of me that's like, yeah, I uh, I don't know. Submission defense, not great. His chin, not great. His cardio, not great. He has a wrestling advantage over Johnny Walker that he could use. He has a big clubbing right hand that he could use to clip Johnny Walker. That's all well and good. But for minus 200, the way this guy fights, I couldn't do it. 
I'd love to back him as an underdog against most guys because yeah, he's going to come and he'll, he'll fight for it. But as a two to one favorite, you got to assume this guy's got his head on straight and he don't, I know he's been spending time in Vegas physically looks in better shape. Cardio looks like it has improved, but then he just goes out and he, he, he drops the ball against uh, in the span fight and it just brings back all those same feelings. Yeah. Maybe his cardio is not good. Maybe his ring IQ is not great. Maybe this and that. Right. So uh, I, and I just, I can't get behind him. I would have to take Johnny Walker. The problem is, what do you take Johnny Walker for? Because the props, my friend, are a juicy, okay? If you yeah. thought Johnny Walker was somehow going to win a decision, it's plus 550. If you thought Johnny Walker could knock him out, 325. If you thought Johnny Walker could submit him, 1,200. But you think Johnny Walker is going to win, and you can figure out how he's going to win, the props are just absolutely gigantic, right? Are people worried, oh, man, Walker, maybe he doesn't have a chin anymore. Maybe it's the fight game. He's a big guy. He fights big guys. But for my money's worth, it's like, oh, well, Jamal Hill is one of the better guys in the division. He's got extremely good power. He's got a nasty left hand. Walker was actually outpointing him in that fight. Got clipped. I'll give you a pass because the dude's a badass. Okay. He went the distance 25 minutes with Thiago Santos. He's with PFL now. He went the distance with Nikita Krylov, who is a finishing machine. Um... Is he chinny? You know, Corey Anderson clipped him, and Anderson is not known for his power. And Jamal Hill clips him. This is the fight game. It's going to happen. Kudalab has been knocked out. Does that make him chinny? So I just got to think, I've been getting torched on these underdogs, right? A lot of underdogs are coming through on all these cards. You look at the card, you agree with the lines maker. You agree with the odds, right? You got a lot of favorites. There's going to be these dogs that come in and shit in the apple pie. Johnny Walker's, I love fading them, and I love betting Kudalaba. I just got a bad gut feeling that these are the spots that I would normally go on Kudalaba and get burned at the end of the night. I'm just looking to stay away. So, yes, I will take Johnny Walker. I am going to take the Johnny Walker by knockout at 325. But like, you don't, you don't want to put a whole lot into it, I don't think, unless you had some type of inside tip more than he's not on CBD anymore. <laughs> Dude, this is a this is a very volatile fight in my opinion, but I can't come up with the reasoning to actually back Kutalaba at minus two hundred. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. This is where we actually have to start looking at numbers as well. And Johnny Walker is definitely more alive than that. So I, I don't hate anybody taking a shot on Johnny Walker. I absolutely see it. Um, this fight could go any freaking way. All right, let's move on to the next fight. Here we got Irene uh, Aldana going up against Macy Kiasson. In terms of odds, we got minus 180 now on Irene Aldana and plus 155 on Macy Kiasson. I love this spot for Irene Aldana, if I'm being honest here, Cody, man. I, I think she has Kiasson pretty much outmatched in every aspect of this, other than, you know, Kiasson, like I talked about with Jamie Pickett, you know, the physical attributes of Kiasson usually allows her to win her fights, right? When you go back and watch her fight with Shannon Young, she's just bullying her around the cage, right? Taking her to the ground and just grinding her out and not really doing it with the best technique, but she can make up for that because she's so big and strong, pretty much. And then Aldana is pretty tall and, and lanky as well for this weight class. Let me get the actual metrics here. But uh, yeah, uh, Kiasan will have a two-inch height advantage as well as a four-inch reach advantage. But luckily, none of that transfers to skill, which is where I think Adene Aldana pretty much has her outmatched. Now, a lot of people want to go back and look at the Holly Holm fight for Adene Aldana and be like, hey, she got taken down five times in that fight. Macy Kiasan can do the exact same thing. The reason they said that is because they look at Holly Holm and just only see her as a striker. She is not just a striker. She has now you know, over the last couple of years reached 
that MMA form where she can mix in grappling if she needs to, just like she did against Megan Anderson several years ago. You know, she can mix in the grappling. She's strong. She's probably the strongest woman in that weight class. You know, you see the videos of her deadlifting and lifting all these weights and doing all that stuff and just seeing how chiseled she is, not to mention her being one of the most tested athletes in USADA's history. She still's passing all those tests, but she's it's because she's just so strong and physically gifted. Macy Casson, yes, she's strong and big, but like she doesn't have the technical aspects that Holly Holm was able to pull into that fight to get uh Adeni Aldana to the mat. Now, the specific numbers in terms of the takedowns that Irene Aldana has faced in her UFC career goes like this: she's been taken down seven on taken down seven times on 45 attempts. If you take the Holly Holm fight out of it. She's only been taken down two on two times on 31 attempts. So she's stuffing takedowns at a good clip, and she's doing a good job in terms of staying out of positions that make her vulnerable to getting taken down, right? Go back and watch the Yana Kunitskaya fight even if you want to. Anytime Kunitskaya tries to get that clinch going, you see Aldana dig the underhook immediately, pivot off, get back into open space, and absolutely butcher Kunitskaya on the feet, eventually finishing her as well later in that first round. Her striking is much better than Macy Kiasson. She's going to fuck her up on the feet. She's going to finish her. She's going to knock her out. Plus 450, Irene Aldana by knockout. I see it from a mile away. I just feel like this is one of those spots that's too good to be true. I think she'll mess up Kiasson on the feet, counter effectively, get the better shots in, and eventually put her down and put her out. Let's go, Kia, uh, Aldana. Aldana KO plus 450. But even her money line at minus 180, I think that line is a steal and a half. Am I too high on Arena here? Bring me back down to earth if, if you think so. Uh, no, I got Aldana. I thought the money line was one of the more generous money lines on the card, uh, but you can see it's starting to trend towards Aldana even more. Like I think it was minus 170, now it's minus 180. Uh, but the, the knockout, that I don't know about. Like I could also see her just outpointing Chase on from the outside, who, you know, doesn't seem like she's got durability issues. But uh, yeah, with Irene Aldana, I think she is one of the heavier uh, punchers at women's 135 pound division. Could she get the knockout? Sure. Um, again, when I look at her, I think she's making improvements. I know she is 34 years old, but she was a little bit late coming into MMA. And Aldana's got the boxing. She's got the footwork. It's the ground game. It's been largely kind of evading her. But you're 100% right. She spent a lot of time working on it. She looked a lot better than Yannick's Kunikea fight. And here's for my money's worth, right? Holly Holm is a former 45er. Yeah, former champion at 35. But girl's big, thick, strong. When you look at her two fights pro uh, that she was supposed to fight Jermaine Duran to me, a 45er, then she was supposed to fight Aspen Ladd, a 45er. So now <laughs> she's taking on Macy Kinson, a 45er, and she's getting the fight at 35. That's great. That's great. Irene Aldana's been working to fight these bigger, more lumbering opponents because she's faster, she's quicker, she's got the striking arsenal, and of course she's working on keeping the fight standing. For Chason, meanwhile, this one is a bit of a puzzler to me. She wins the ultimate fighter at 145 pounds. The best she's ever looked in the UFC is arguably her UFC debut against Penny Kianzad to win to win the uh, championship. Then after that, she's fighting at 35. She beats Gina Mazzani, uh, Sarah Maras. Uh. She lost to Lena Landsberg as a minus 450 favorite. That fight is awful. She has no ability to pressure in the clinch. She's got no cardio. She's got no striking at range. It's a real bad performance. Now I look at the fights since then. Shayna Young, by decision. Good win. She won 30-26, but Shayna Young hasn't exactly gone to decision in most of her losses. Like She's there to get beat up. She's there to get beat up, and she's there to get put away, right? Marion Renault. Marion Renault was, I think, 43 years old at the time. It's a 29-28 across the board because Renault had some success in that fight. 
And then Raquel Pennington just absolutely beats her up, uses the size, uses the physicality, does all the thing that Macy does to opponents and works her over. The important thing to note is the Raquel Pennington fight was at 145 pounds and Macy Chase on weighed 148 and a half. She couldn't even make the featherweight limit. The very next fight against Norma Dumas, she did make 145 pounds. Your last two fights have been at 45. You missed one of them by two and a half pounds coming at 148 and a half. And now you're magically just going to drop back down to 135. But again, on the press conference this week, she says, well, I wish more girls would float between 35 and 45. You know what that means? It means there's nobody at 145 for me to fight. So the UFC's basically said you better get down to 35 or there's no fights. And she's implying, oh, I wish other girls would just come fuck around at 45 for no reason because there's nobody in the division. So she's being forced to come back down. It's going to be a tough weight cut. She's going to be tired. If she was able to successfully control Aldana early, it's going to take a lot of physicality. That physicality is going to tire her out. If she's not able to get a hold of her, Aldana's going to dance around her, which is also tiring because you're continuously trying to track your opponent down and you're moving. There's a lot of movement. There's jabs. There's right hands. You're trying to dip. You're trying to bob. You're trying to weave. It's all tiring. But I just think Aldana sticks to the outside, uses her kicks, uses her jab, uses her, her hand speed, her combinations, just picks away. I could see her knocking out Macy Chase on, but I'm kind of thinking the decision personally. So we both like the money line. We both like Aldana. You think knockout, I think decision. Hopefully she just gets the win, right? That's the main thing. But I think this should be a good, I don't want to say a coming out party for Irene Aldana. She hasn't fought in 14 months and she's 34 years old, but I think you're going to see a, a better version of her. Yeah, I think she should cruise in the spot. And maybe I'm getting a little bit overzealous in terms of the KO spot, but I do think that there is that much of a skill discrepancy in terms of the striking that if Aldana can truly put it together, she should be able to find that finishing opportunity should it present itself. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. Uh, first short notice fight that we got in the top three fights, just to fill up this card and add a little bit of name value to it. We got Kevin Holland coming in as a minus 200 favorite, going up against D-Rod, Daniel Rodriguez, who's coming in as a plus 170 underdog. Not to mention Daniel Rodriguez also kind of taking this fight on short notice, although according to a recent interview, he's been ready to go since July, but this fight came together pretty pretty much on short notice, but it's been over a year since we saw him in the cage. Last time we saw him in the cage, uh, he built onto his three-fight winning streak by defeating Kevin Lee. You know, he got taken down early in that fight, but as we know with every single Kevin Lee fight, he starts hot, then he starts to simmer down, and that's when his opponents are able to take over, and that's what Daniel Rodriguez was able to do that night. Really put it on him, and then eventually uh, won that fight via decision. Good work from him in that spot. Now, since then, like I said, he's been out of the cage for almost a year now or just over a year. He's been dealing with a lot of hand injuries. Apparently, he's had three hand surgeries. Um, you know, not something you want to hear from a guy that primarily likes to use his hands. And I think that's going to cause him some issues in the spot against a guy like Kevin Holland. Originally, you know, before I get, went into the tape for this fight, I thought this was a live spot for Daniel Rodriguez, right? I could never really trust Kevin Holland at minus 200. I just see too many glaring holes in his game that guys can take advantage of. But... We are seeing improvements in his takedown defense, right? Tim Means struggled to get him down and hold him down. Alex Cowboy Oliveira couldn't get him down and hold him down. And I think this drop to 170 pounds has really helped him. Now, I know this fight is also at a um, at a, at a catch weight. I believe it's at a 180-pound yeah, catch weight. So 10 pounds higher than he would normally fight at. But he's still a big dude here in comparison to Daniel Rodriguez, right? He's going to be enjoying... Um, 
a, what is that? A two inch height advantage, as well as a seven inch reach advantage. That's where he's going to be able to do his best work is on the outside, touching up Daniel Rodriguez and Rodriguez, decent striking, good southpaw, uses a variety of strikes, leg kicks, elbows, punches, all that good stuff. But the issue here is the speed. Speed comes into play way more than people think that it does, right? It came in fully on display last week with Robert Whitaker just beating up Vittori, beating him to the punch every single time. Same thing could happen here with Kevin Holland just touching up uh, Daniel Rodriguez from the outside. It could transpire in a knockout. I think that's kind of the prop that I'm leaning at at most here as well is Holland by KO, which currently sits at plus 225 as I think that Daniel Rodriguez will be too slow for him, and I think he's going to be whiffing at error a lot, eating a lot of counters as well for his trouble, and I think that's going to cause him some issues here. Last thing I'll say about this, and I'll swing it on over to you. Uh, the reason Daniel Rodriguez, in my opinion, lost that fight to Nicholas Dalby, you know, a lot of people thought that he won that fight, but the struggles that he was having in that fight was the kicking game of Nicholas Dalby. Dalby was able to keep him on the outside and just chip away at him with these, like, you know, pitter-patter shots from the outside, whereas D-Rod normally does the best work in the pocket when he's able to close that distance and slug it out with guys like Mike Perry or slug it out with guys like Preston Parsons or even Kevin Lee, who doesn't really have the greatest footwork and doesn't really have the greatest striking game either. He can beat those guys to the punch and exchange with them in the pocket. That's not going to be live here against Kevin Holland, who will likely be able to keep his distance and stay on the outside. Special cloud bet prop here for you, Cody. And then I'll swing it on over to you. Uh, actually, two of them. First one. Will Kevin Holland successfully defend a takedown? Yes, minus 220, no, plus 185. Yes. Yeah, I'm going with yes on that one. There we go. For sure. For sure. And then and then secondly, uh, total significant strikes for Kevin Holland over under 42 and a half. Over. Yeah. There you go. I'm saying over. Uh, I can see the knockout. I think that's the problem I'm going to chase as well. Uh, but I just, he's not going to one hander quitter him. It's like he's going to have to hit him multiple times and probably get him to the second round, maybe get him to the third round, and then eventually go out there and land that kill shot. So I think he's live to get the knockouts. As far as the takedown defense goes, listen, can, taken down by Brunson, it's fucking Derek Brunson. He's a big middleweight and he's an excellent wrestler. Dude took down Yoel Romero. So I really don't care that he got taken down from him. And then Vittori, well, he guy's a former title challenger. 185 pounder, big stick guy. Because those guys are able to take you down, that doesn't mean anybody's just going to be able to take you down. And Kevin Holland realized it was a hole in his game. So if I, if you're living in Texas and you need to figure out how to wrestle, well, who are you going to call? Not the Ghostbusters, Johnny motherfucking Hendricks. The guy's a former national champion. He's an excellent wrestler. He got too fat to use his wrestling in his own personal career, but could still show you how to wrestle. And I feel like he's wrestling been getting a lot better. He took a grappling match against Cody Hamra. Cody Hamra is a former collegiate wrestling standout, BJJ Black Belt, and he's Damian Maya's wrestling coach. Damian Maya is one of the most successful takedown artists in the UFC. Not because he's a great wrestler. Because he gets a hold of you, he gets you down. Kevin Holland's wrestling looked infinitely better against Cody Hamra in a grappling match. And then, as you mentioned, against Alex Oliveric, taken down twice, pops right back up. Against Tim Means, takedown defense, looks even better. At 170, he's starting to fill out. He's still young. And he's just adding those skills to his game. So I think that on both props, he outlands them. But the the taken down, yeah, no, listen, it's not like Daniel Rodriguez is known for his wrestling. When was the last time he took a guy down? He took a guy down, Gabe Green. He took Gabe Green down once. And then on the contender series, he took down fucking Rico Farrington. Okay, all right. Is he taking down anybody of note? Nope, nope. So I don't know that he goes out and he takes him down. Looking at it, I could be way overplaying into this, but looking at it, 
Um, you got you got Daniel Rodriguez here. He's six foot one with a seventy four inch reach, right? Which sounds decent, but in this spot, he's going to be giving up two inches of height to Kevin Holland, and he's giving up six or seven inches in reach to Kevin Holland, right? Huge man, huge. Now look at Daniel Rodriguez for a second. Okay, what are where his wins? Gabe Green, five foot eleven. Nicholas Dalby, five foot ten. Mike Perry, five foot ten. Preston Parsons, five foot eleven. Kevin Lee. Five foot nine. Now he's going to take on a guy that's six foot three and Kevin Holland. Hmm. Interesting. Never actually fought guys that are six feet before. He has in the sense that Dwight Grant's six one and Tim Means is six two. But if you remember both those fights, Dwight Grant rocked him early and had him hurt. And then Tim Means had lots of success in the first round before he flat out gassed out in the second round. So I don't think he deals particularly good with these tall guys. See, what he likes to do is, like you said, get into the pocket, exchange, volume, 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 work the body, work the legs, work the head. He does a very good job of mixing it up and using variety. But for the most part, he generally fights guys that are smaller than him. He generally can use that reach. Against Holland, he's going to get beat to the punch more often than not. Now, Holland's gone on record being like, yo, all these cappers keep saying how this guy's got a, a technical boxing advantage. He's a good boxer. He's like, I watched this, the tape on him. He's like, not a good boxer. He's a street boxer. Everything he throws, he's there to get hit. And re-watching it, it's like, yo, shit. He does get hit a whole lot. He throws volume for sure. He's able to matador guys like Mike Perry who are street fighters. But someone with a proper approach that's going to tie him and land a counter, right? They're going to hurt him. They're going to hurt him bad. We did see him get hurt the one time versus Dwight Grant. But then the rest of his fights are Preston Parsons and Kevin Lee. Kevin Lee, it sounds good. But keep in mind, one, this is a 155-pounder. Two, this is a guy that got released right after the fight. Three, this is a guy that barely beat Diego Sanchez in his very next fight. Is that your career best win? Not very impressive. So I don't know. I don't want to shit on D-Rock because I actually like the guy. Super entertaining. He always brings a wicked good fight, but he's 35 years old. I don't, he's had three hand surgeries. He's been sitting kind of on the sidelines. Kevin Lee's a 55er. Preston Parsons is completely irrelevant. Dolby's a 55er. Now you're taking on a guy that fought at middleweight, right? And so if he would have met you at 170, would have made more sense. But he's fighting you at 180. That favors Kevin Holland. He's fought there before. He's a much bigger guy. He's way taller, way longer. And I think if he does have that speed advantage, he already has the power advantage, he's going to clip him at some point and knock him down. The only one thing I screwed up on is I should have got with uh, Bet Online and all those guys because plus 220, shit, I bet that at plus 190. I'm such an idiot. Uh, I know. Kevin Holland by knockout. That's that's what I'm going to go with. I didn't get the best price on it, but uh, it's just one of these feeling things. you know. Has, has Daniel Rodriguez been knocked out in the UFC? No. Has he been knocked out in his career? No, not necessarily, but uh, it's going to happen. He's there to get hit. He's there to get rocked. I just got a feeling that Kevin Holland's going to you know, put him put it on him. I am I am slightly scared of a possible club and sub situation, which is probably why I would defer to uh, Holland inside the distance around plus 150, but... You know, both are live in my opinion, right? Whether it's him snatching up a gilly, whether it's him snatching up a Darius, or even just punching him out and, and knocking him out that way, I think it could absolutely work here. So you'll remember this because we do the prop show together, but I we hit the prop, the him versus Tim Means by submission, but I also had it over Alex Oliveira because it was like plus 600. Because Kevin mm. Holland never submits anybody, but he is a BJJ black belt under Travis fucking Luder, the serial killer. My boy. Uh, yeah, but when Alex Oliveira fight, he hits him. Oliveira goes down. He just keeps punching. He gets the finish. In the Tim Means fight, he grabs the neck. So that's a problem. There's no rhyme or reason. Do you want it's, the submission? Do you yeah. not want the submission? 
My thing though is that Daniel Rodriguez is a 10th planet guy, right? He's actually decent at jiu-jitsu. You don't get to see a whole lot of it, but I think he'll be adequate stand or like on the ground, but a club and sub. Yeah. You don't even know where the fuck you are. And all of a sudden the guy's got your neck, right? So if Glover Texera could get submitted by Yuri Prochaska, <laughs> yeah. it can happen. At any all right. God that is, it. yeah, that, that is, that is right there. That is rule number one. If Glover can get subbed by Prochaska, it's absolutely on the table for anybody else. For sure. Even uh fluffy Hernandez submitting Rodolfo Vieira, right? Like it's you, always on the table. You'll remember this cause you're a badass. Uh, it was uh, not Fabiano Iha. Who, who is, he was out of extreme couture for a long time. He was the man. He was the WEC. Wagney Fabiano. Wagney Fabiano versus Macken Semrenzer, right? Ooh. And the WEC fight, Macken Semrenzer is a purple belt, and he's taking on a fucking god, right? This guy is – he came to Toronto for a bit. He just wiped out everybody. He fought in the IFL. He wiped out everybody. He's a Nova you know, black belt. I seen him compete in jiu-jitsu. He wipes out everybody, and Macken Semrenzer caught him in a triangle choke. I'll never forget that because it was like, holy shit. Anybody can submit anybody. You just gotta lock that thing up, right? So yeah, okay. I wouldn't I wouldn't rule it out. And 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 listen, I mean you got Kevin Holland who is a BJJ black belt, yeah. but uh, I just feel like the more probably the 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 best path to victory for him is just land that shot standing. If he's hurt and you want to fall him to the ground, great, but don't let him off the hook. Don't try to grab his neck and allow him to clear the cobwebs. Just keep smashing on him. And last but not least, with Holland, his last two losses are five round fights, and he's getting out wrestled. But in the Brunson fight, Brunson's dead dog tired. Holland's cardio is actually pretty good. In the Vittori fight, a little less so because he was kind of like telling his corner, like, yeah, I'm about to lose. And it's like, don't think like that, man. You got to go over and fight. But I think that was all good learning experience stuff for him. So I'm expecting to see, um, again, you've been seeing improvements out of Holland, I think, in all of his fights, but certainly his two fights since he's come down to 170. And I think this will just be a continuation of that. D-Rod, meanwhile, if I sounded disrespectful to him, I did not mean to. I, I am a big fan of his. Just you got to pick one side or the other, and I'm going with Hall and Hall by knockout. I like it. I'm right there with you as well. I'll, I'll probably go inside the distance, like I said, but very close. All right, let's get to the next fight here. We're going to be talking about the other short notice fight they put on this card to try to bolster the name value. And what better way to do it than Tony motherfucking Ferguson, who's coming in at uh, plus 255. He's taking on Lee the Leech Jing Liang, who's coming in at minus 305. Uh, of note, obviously, this fight taking place at welterweight. And I think a lot of people are kind of thinking that this is Tony Ferguson moving up to welterweight and trying to make a run over there but i think they are mistaken as this is more so of a circumstantial uh spot for him to take this fight at welterweight so that he could you know quote unquote save this card right like uh, there's no way the ufc was going to force him to go out there and cut the weight and all that and try to make 155 pounds but you know it, it, it's still a very sketchy fight for him to go up against a heavy hitter like Li jing liang now, I, I don't agree with the odds. Like, a lot of people are like, oh, Leach is going to go out there and knock him out. It makes sense, right? Eight of his 16 wins all coming by now, or eight of his 16 victories inside. Uh, was it eight, eight of his 16 victories total? Let me just quickly get, get this up here. Um, uh, bah, 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 bah. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it was eight of his 16 total victories have come inside the distance. Uh, big knockout power. We know that's what he brings to the table. But uh, to me, a lot of the guys that he's knocking out are guys that are either older, bad cardio, or bad chins, right? Muslim Salikov, older, slower, got clipped. Santiago Ponzinibbio, durability, starting to fall off. Not to mention, that was his first fight back after that long layoff that he had. Elizio Zaleski knocks him out with nine seconds left. David Zvada, not the greatest, able to crumple him with the body kick. Zach Otto, we know he kind of sucks as well. 
Bobby Nash kind of sucks. Anton Zafir kind of sucks. Tony Ferguson, ironclad, you know, normally, right? Other than the Justin Gaethje fight where he gets finished, obviously. Uh, but even then, he didn't go out. It was an accumulation of strikes that got him out of there. And then the Michael Chandler fight. Winning that fight up until the moment that we get that nuclear front kick to the chin that puts his lights out. That's what it took to finally turn out the lights of Tony Ferguson. A nuclear front kick up the middle that you know would have knocked down a, a fucking elephant, honestly, with the amount of impact and velocity that was on that kick. Leech, big power puncher for sure, but like the unorthodox movement and style of Tony Ferguson really makes it hard for people to land those big strikes and land that knockout blow, which is why he's been able to evade, you know, getting knocked out for as long as he has up until this whole COVID era that he's on, that four fight losing streak that he's currently on. So the Leech is definitely, in my opinion, not of the level. Maybe he's closer to Michael Chandler level than he is of anybody else that uh, Tony Ferguson has fought during this COVID era. And like he's so reliant and not just not high volume enough to truly maximize finishing opportunities for him, especially against a guy like Tony Ferguson. So in my opinion, Ferguson is live in this spot. The only red flags are keeping me off in terms of getting to the betting window and actually betting him. 38 years old and only four months removed from that Michael Chandler knockout. That's the biggest red flag for me in this spot. If, you know, if we had eight months since that bad knockout, maybe I'd have a little bit more confidence in it. But four months, a little bit too short for me after getting your lights turned out like that. But in my opinion, that's not enough reason for me to go out there and bet minus 300 on the leech. Because if he doesn't get the knockout here, Tony Ferguson could be the one on output here, right? He could be the one landing shots, maybe landing some takedowns, maybe pulls a submission out of his ass. Because the two losses or two losses on Leech's record in the UFC have come via submission. Sure, one of them to Hamzat Shemaev, and we can give him a pass for that. But Keita Nakamura subbed this guy, you know, a handful of years ago as well. We know Tony Ferguson could still have that jiu-jitsu up his sleeve. He could slap on a dart stroke at some point and possibly get a submission himself. So from a money line perspective, I think Ferguson is the side. But in terms of props, is probably where you'll be able to make the best money, right? Even if you're on the leech side. If you're picking leech to win at minus 300, you think he gets the knockout. And the leech by knockout is currently sitting at plus 110. But let's get a little bit greasier with this shit shouldn't we uh cody uh ferguson by submission plus 800 that line seems off to me that absolutely seems off to me considering how active ferguson is in terms of looking for submissions and trying to get that finish uh his slicing elbows and all that stuff that could open up finishing opportunities for him as well i just i don't have a grasp on the total here but i know if the leech doesn't knock him out early in this spot ferguson is going to make this fight a lot closer he could get his own finish or he can win this on points just off of output and activity alone so like i do kind of end up on the leech in terms of getting that knockout but i need to take a shot on ferguson by submission at plus 800 that line is way too off considering the the advantage he should have in the grappling uh, aspect of this fight but it's so hard to trust him with all the out of cage factors, right? The 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 short layoff and and the um and the age, all that is just too much for me to to truly have confidence on the Tony Ferguson side. Uh, perfect cloud bet prop for you here, Cody, and then I'll swing it on over to you. Will there be blood? Yes, minus one twelve. No, minus one oh nine. What are you thinking here, my friend? 
Yeah, I'm thinking there's blood for sure, right? Tony Ferguson tends to uh, bleed a lot of the time he's fighting. Uh, yeah, I just feel like at some point, you know, whether he wins or loses, he's going to get hit with something. He may bleed. And then the way he fights, man, if you're going to beat him, you're going to have to pack a lunchbox. And if you're going to lose to him, he's going to just beat on you for a prolonged period of time. So it just seems like a lot of his fights are generally car wreck type fights. Someone is going to bleed. And then so for that reason, I'll say, yeah. And of course, the one guy's name is the leech. He loves the blood, right? Hopefully we get some stuff going here, but I, I got to go with Tony Ferguson. I think the money line is good enough that if you were going to bet him, just fucking take the money line. That being said, I think that there's some juicy props there. As you mentioned, plus 800 from him by submission uh, possible because I don't think Jing Liang Lee is the best grappler going. Comes out, she might have submitted him right away once he took his back. But Jake Matthews had him snagged up in a guillotine choke and he had to finger blast his, both of his eyes just to get out. So. <laughs> I think a guy like Tony Ferguson does have a good uh, snap down. He's got a good Dars choke. Uh, I mean, the guy used to be, uh, oh, fucking ankle pick you, man. I'm fucking ankle pick you. It's like, don't try to ankle pick anybody. And don't try to Imanari roll for goddamn sakes. But, yeah, if you take him down, you can put a bit of pressure on him. You can hurt him. You can make it a wild fight. And you can grab a hold of the neck. It's possible. The other thing is Jing Liang Li never been knocked out. So the Tony Ferguson, what number do you got? I got plus 1,100. I got, where is it at here? Uh, sorry, what what was it? Ferguson by knockout. Yeah, Ferguson by knockout. Plus one thousand, plus eleven hundred is what I'm saying. Yeah, right. So, so the reason why that is, it's it's like, oh well, you know, Tony's not knocking out guys, and Jing Liang Li never been knocked out, and this and that. But keep in mind, because I've always found this very interesting. Jing Liang Li got knocked down by Kata Nakamura and then choked out. Right, he was a minus three fifty favorite over him for the record. Right, then he got knocked down by Bobby Nash. He got knocked down twice against Jake Matthews. He got knocked down by David Zawada. He'd been fucking dropped five times in his UFC career. It's just he fights low fucking level guys and they're not knocking him out. Bobby Nash is no longer with the promotion. Um, Keita Nakamura is no longer with the promotion. Uh, I guess Jake Matthews is clinging to his job. I like Jake Matthews. Uh, David Zawada, I don't know if he isn't with the promotion anymore, but I'm leaning towards not with the promotion. Those guys, he walks right through. Sure, he gets dropped. He gets back up. That's fine. You're going to take on a world-class guy that's going to drop you and not going to be as easy as just getting back up. So I feel like Tony, not necessarily the biggest power punching guy, but he's someone that catches you from weird angles and he puts a lot of pressure. So maybe he could use his volume to sting him. If he stings him, he can get him to the ground. If he keeps pounding, he could be the first guy to knock him out. Now, plus 1100, the whole line seems disrespectful to Tony. Like people are like, oh, he's shot and he can't take a punch anymore. It's like that, that kick to the face would have knocked out anybody. And for the record, Tony Ferguson won the first round of that fight. He was looking good. He was looking pretty solid. Yeah. He got caught by a front kick. Okay, shit happens. Does that mean that all of his skills have just regressed tremendously? Jing Liang Li is not a top 10 guy. They might give him a little number next to his name that puts him in the top 15, but he's extremely middling. All of his wins, for the most part, over guys that are non-relevant within the division. Ponzinibbio hasn't been the same since he's come back. Muslim Salikov's almost 40 years old, not relevant in the division. Zawada, Dechiabe, Zach Otto, Frank Camacho. What? How is he a minus 300 favorite over Tony? Because the narrative, the narrative is, well, Tony's moving up to 170. And I haven't seen the Wayans. I haven't seen the press conference. Like, I haven't seen him with a shirt on, but I, I just saw briefly the comment section. Everyone's saying he looked fat and out of shape. If that's the case, uh, maybe it's worth waiting until you see the Wayans tomorrow. Maybe it's worth, you know, 
taking a look at, but I feel like the cut to 55 on Tony would have been very difficult. Well, he's a kind of a big 55er. If you look at all the guys that he had fought with at 55, large majority of them have moved on. A lot of them try to move up to 170 at some point, you know, whether it's uh, just a bunch of these guys, like, I think 170 could be okay for him. He I don't think he's going to be totally outsized. And I think he just goes out there and, and delivers us one more good performance. The last thing I got to go with, and again, this is probably more narrative and speculation more than anything, but you know, you're a gambler, right? So you got to look at price and how do you how do guys come through? These are Jingliang Lin's last number of wins. Let's just say his last three wins, okay? Muslim Solikov. He is a plus 135 underdog to Solikov. Him versus Ponzinibbio. He's a plus 260 underdog to Ponzinibbio. Him versus Aleski, uh, Zaleski Dos Santos. He's a plus 205 underdog to Zaleski Dos Santos. If you can get Leech for dog money, for plus money, yeah, that's the time to bet him because he's going to come forward and throw some big hands. How he loses generally is as the favorite. He was the favorite over Neil Magny when he lost. He's the favorite over Jake Matthews when he lost. He's the favorite over Keita Nakamura when he lost. This is the same thing. He shouldn't be a minus 300 favorite over pretty much anybody in the division. And I get Tony Ferguson's not in the division. He's moving up. But I just don't know. The price seems very off to me. I've seen guys take beatings and come back good as new. And then, you know, Edson Barbosa is a great example. How many wars has he been in where it's like, yeah, he's never going to be the same after this. And then do we just come back good again? Some people are resilient. Some people can Andre take Andre fucking Arlovsky. We wrote him off in 2010. <laughs> yeah, you can't take a punch anymore. And then all of a sudden it's like, damn, he's kind of having some of his, his, his best fights yet. But... You know, how many guys have never been knocked out? There's very few, okay? And then Kamaru Usman gets knocked out, and I can't go to a website that doesn't have it plastered on the front page, like, he might never be the same, eh? Dude yeah. got knocked out, dude. He may never be the same. It's like, <laughs> the fucking fight game, dude. They get knocked yeah. out, I wouldn't say all the time, but, like, the average guy is going to get knocked out three, four times in his career that you see. A lot of these guys are getting knocked out in the gym that you don't see, but believe me, it happens quite frequently. I don't know. And then it's like, well, okay, but he's old and he's this and he's that. What about the four-fight losing streak? Five rounds of Justin Gaethje. Crazy, considering he's a former title challenger, top-ranked guy. Charles Oliveira. Dope. Champion. Peniel Dariush. Dope. Top-five guy. Michael Chandler. Dope. Former world champion. Former UFC title challenger. These guys are the creme de la creme. Was Jing Liang leaving out? Yeah. Ah, uh, he's entertaining. He's entertaining. He's a brute. He'll come forward. He'll mix it up with you. Could catch you. Is that good enough to be a minus 300 favorite over Tony Ferguson? I don't think so. So I'm going to go with Tony Ferguson and not popular, I'm sure, but uh, I don't hate it. I'm Honestly, a little I really don't hate on it. Tony Ferguson by TKO. Just a little, it's 11 to 1. Just a yeah. little sprinkle. But the money line is good enough that you don't have to get cheeky with this thing. That's why. Uh, well, you're going TKO. I'm going submission, but hopefully one of us oh, ends yeah. up cashing. But well, even Steve Ferguson gets hand raised. Yeah. yeah, inside the distance is plus 500. So I, I, I considered that as well. I like it. I like it. All right. We're about to get into the main event here, but I believe the majority of the viewers that we had are actually shifted on over to the press conference because I just saw a big dip. Uh, we're closer to 80 live viewers now compared to the 120 that we were at earlier, but I believe that the press conference just kicked off about five or 10 minutes ago. But 
you're on the main event. So shout out to everybody that's still hanging with us in here. We'll be wrapping it up very shortly so that you guys can help on over there as well. Uh, make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe if you haven't already. Shout out to betonline.ag as well. Link to sign up for a welcome bonus of up to $1,000 is in the description below. Take full advantage of that. All right, let's get right into this main event so we can wrap this thing up, Cody. Main event time. And it's put together pretty much just to get Nate Diaz outside of the UFC, get him his last fight on his contract. That's about it. Cody, you touched a lot about it on the top of the podcast here, but we know what the storyline pretty much is that we get why um, Hamza Shmaev, you know, again, best fight odds fucking me up, making him go up against Nick Diaz instead of Nate Diaz. But uh, you're getting minus 1,200 on Hamza Shmaev, plus 725 the return on Nate Diaz. So the best way to attack this fight, in my opinion, would be the total, right? Do you think this goes over one and a half or do you think it goes under? I personally think that it goes under. And I think it's because Nate Diaz does not give a fuck about this weekend, in my opinion. I truly think that he sees it as a ticket out of the UFC just to get this fight over with. And I think he won't mind just giving it up. You heard him on the uh, uh, press conference yesterday. Go ahead, beat me. Like, he just does not give a fuck. And I truly think that Hamza, if he comes in here without fucking around, he's going to look to take Nate to the ground almost immediately, smash him up, beat him up. I don't care how good Nate's jujitsu is. It's not going to stand to the level of grappling that he's going to be facing when Hamza's on top of him. He's going to get him down. He's going to be able to get to those dominant positions, slice him up with elbows, slice him up with some big ground and pound. Either that opens up a submission opportunity for him or he just TKOs him. I think Hamza gets this done very quickly. And I think he gets it done in round one. Plus 200 is what I saw for Hamza round one. I took plus 120 on the under one and a half myself, but I think that's what the large majority of this. I'm not even going to entertain late Nate Diaz props or anything like that because I really think he's phoning it in this weekend. And I don't think he's going to have what it takes to even get to the second round of this matchup. I'll throw this on over to you, Cody. We do have a bunch of uh, cloud bat props specifically for this matchup. Um, I'll ask you one by one and get your answer for each one, and then we'll throw you into the the full breakdown that you want to do. But the first one, they had an alternative total of over under half a round. Over half a round is minus two twenty. Under half a round is plus two hundred. What do you think? Yeah, over over half a round. I consider just taking fight completes one round is minus two hundred. Okay. Uh, so the, yeah, this this would be half a round, and it's relatively a close price. Yeah, I'd, I'd take that. Uh, Hamzat successful takedowns over under two and a half. Uh, I want to say over because it's oh he'll take him down whenever he wants, but he, he probably only needs one takedown it's in the first, eight. one takedown in the second, and if it don't go to the third, you're fucked. So yeah, I'm gonna say under on that one. Under two and a half is minus one twenty. It sounds uh, crazy. You're taking it under on takedowns, Chamaya versus Diaz. Yeah. I, I I would go with that. Yeah. Um. Also, uh, will there be blood in the first round? Yes, minus 200. No, plus 175. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. <sighs> it's Diaz, though. I'm, I'm going to say no. I'm going to take a yes. I think he gets him down immediately and fucks him up. Yeah, you could be right about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just I almost feel like because everybody thinks Chamayas is going to take him down and smash him, and that's been the narrative, that this guy's going to try to prove, like, I don't have to do that. Look how good my striking is. And he might play with his food for a little bit but even in that scenario all he's got to do is jab diaz in the face once and similar <laughs> similar to his brother nick his face is gonna fucking split open so yeah you're, you're probably not wrong and taking the blood in the first all right last one and then i'll let you get into the breakdown i think you're gonna enjoy this one nate diaz 
F-bombs in the post-fight interview, if he gets a post-fight interview, over two and a half or under two and a half? I'm going to say under because I don't think he gets a post-fight interview. Like, they should give him one. He's a legend of the sport. He's a legend of the UFC. He's paid his dues. He's done everything. And I think with most other guys, they get one. But because he's specifically leaving, right, what are the chances? I, here's a better prop for you, right? If they were to give this guy the microphone, how many times does he say fuck Dana White in his post-fight <laughs> Right? Right? That's what you don't want. That's, That's what you don't want. So I think the UFC would be like, dude, he's disgruntled. He's pissed off. He doesn't like talking to the media. Shuffle him out. Let the other guys say a bunch of shit. Diaz will no-show the press conference anyways, but he can go on Instagram hey. live and swear all he wants. Uh, according to the live chat, apparently Dana just said that the press conference is not happening. Apparently something happened backstage, and they just called it off for everybody's safety, apparently. That's what everybody in the live chat is saying right now. I'm going to go watch it after this to see exactly what happened, but like... They just called well, off the first conference. of all, might as well come on back over to the breakdown. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> no, but uh, and I mentioned this to Paul yesterday. Chamayev's kind of got this thing going on where he's like, um, I don't want to say he's trying to be a fake gangster. I don't know if he's a real gangster, but he's not He's not being like smart about it, right? He tries to fight Paulo Costa like four days before his fight. He's getting ready to fight at 170. And my buddy talked to Jake Shields. They're like close friends. Jake Shields is like, Costa was like 221. When he was, because he Jake Shields is giving him a private. That's what they're there for, right? They're doing jujitsu. He was like, he was like 220 pounds. Like this guy, he said, this guy come with six guys, talk shit from a distance, and didn't want to fucking approach him. But what what's up with that? Why would you put yourself in a situation where crazy ass Paulo Costa could hop over this thing and punch you in the face? And the only thing stopping him is Ilya Latifi. Like, <laughs> <good guy to laughs> stop him. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah, at least maybe take him down, and hold him down for a few minutes, but. uh, I don't know. It was weird to me. And then, and then the next day, he uh, he was like, "I want, I want to brawl with Nate Diaz at the press conference. I hope he brawled the press conference." Like, what are you talking about, man? You're fighting on Saturday. It, I get it's showmanship, but it's also stupid, right? Like, yeah. why would you put the fight in jeopardy? Why would you put the event in jeopardy? Why would you put anything in jeopardy? You're fighting. You have a contract. You're fighting the guy on Saturday. Fight the guy on Saturday. Oh, I want to brawl with him at the press conference. It's stupid. You're not even allowed to touch your opponent at weigh-ins anymore, okay? Not allowed to do it. After Daniel Cormier threw a shoe at John Jones, and John Jones chucks him off the stage, okay? That that Craig guy, what was his last name? Fuck, he was like a he was their guy for a while. Gone from the company, okay? They don't like when you touch people at press conferences. They don't like when you get into it before the fight. And maybe he's saying it for clout and this and that. The way he approached Paulo Costa, it, that's how it is. Most guys would come up and say, hey, man, you said on Twitter uh, that I'm shit and you, you'd fucking knock me out, man. Well, fuck you. I'll fuck you. I'll fuck you. Well, you know, we'll fight someday. Oh, yeah, we'll fight someday. Blah, 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 blah. You wouldn't try to fight the guy and be like, you said on Twitter. Calm the fuck down, dude. So I'm, I'm hoping – I'm hoping that's not the case, but the way Ch- Chamai has been rolling around fight week is he's like six, seven deep, right? And the way Diaz rolls around every fight week, he's like 10 deep. So they both got entourages and it don't take much for one guy to fight some other guy, right? And uh, I'm almost thinking like that's probably part of it. You got hooligans. Remember that Badrahari fight in glory, like not that yeah. long ago? Like they just yep. stormed the place. Like when you have a following and you have an entourage and the your people feel disrespected as well and they've got nothing to lose hence why two guys jump over a cage to sucker punch conor mcgregor after habib already beat him he won it's over no they're disrespected so to me that's probably what it was i think it's probably just post-fight antics but uh 
I tell you what, this is a shit pay-per-view. Probably not a whole lot of people want to buy. <laughs> Stuff like this is good for business because That's what I'm you're saying, gonna put yeah. it on media. And yeah, no, no, I, I get it. There's probably like a Even, bigger underlying thing, but to cancel the whole press conference, uh, that's gonna cost yeah. you a couple bucks, no? Even even Daniel saying here, maybe this is a big play from Dana to create drama and get more pay-per-view buys. I would assume that if they did the press conference though, and let these guys trip at each other, that would still stir up enough pay-per-view buys for them. But I don't know. Buffalo on the beat saying here, Diaz and Kamzak got, got into a scuffle backstage. So every for everyone's safety, they canceled it. So That's what I would assume is between them two. And like, it sounds pretty good. Like, yo, man, just put a microphone in front of their face. Let them do yeah. some sound bites and then get it yeah. out. But then, but think about what the sound, it'd be like, you'd be like, I smish, I smish. And he'd be like, hey, fuck you, man. Fuck you. Start to do that. What? I smish, smish. Fuck you. Start to do that. What? It'd be, it would be a terrible fucking press conference. Neither of these guys have mic skills. That's Totally One true. guy has broken English and pretty much only says smash. And the other guy has broken English and is fucking from this country. <laughs> Not this. Country. Who wins the fight, Cody? <laughs> Who wins the fight? What's the prop here? Yeah, yeah. No, the, the, the prop is that over half a round. I think like the fight that. gets into one. Listen, Nate Diaz has been fighting professionally for 18 years, right? That's pretty crazy when you think about it. In those 18 years, he's been stopped three times. One time by a pedophile, Hermes Franca, caught him in an armbar in WEC. <laughs> One time he got head kicked by Josh Thompson. Sorry, sorry. I just did. love the little nuggets you just throw in there, especially when they're just so fucking out loud. Well, dude, it's he was one of my favorite fighters, man. Like, I was a Hermes Franca diehard, and he, like, put a pistol on like, a 12-year-old's badge. That's fucked, man. That's fucked. Even I can't support the guys. Like, sorry, dude. I'm really sorry. Oh, I'm not sorry. You're fucked. But, yeah, he got deported. He got deported out of the States to Brazil. Oh, wow. And he, uh, he fights a little bit in Brazil, or at least he was, and he coaches some guys but his whole life is fucked yeah josh thompson had kicked him yeah you know that one was whatever and then masvidal uh on a cut stoppage after three rounds of just an absolute beating so what i'm getting at is in 18 years the guy hasn't really been stopped a whole lot he's been cleanly knocked out once was that head kick it was almost 10 years ago i would think that nate diaz is tough enough to last around but yeah you're right i mean if he does he even want to be here a scuffle backstage is probably better for him because you're not going to scuffle with stage and then fuck you, fuck you. Well, I'll see you Saturday, buddy. I'll see you Saturday. Then you're not going to show up Saturday. I don't want to fight. It's going to be yeah. like, man, I was thinking about doing that, but now this guy done pissed me off. So you'll see that 209 gangster out of him. I think he'll go out there and at least swing for a little bit. So I got the fight completes one round. I would think the over one and a half. And then after that, it's just way too greasy for me. I will end it with this. I would love to see. I would love to see Kamzat Chimaya versus both Diaz brothers. Now, how would you do at it, once? right? Yeah. Well, so so the traditional thinking when you hear that is, oh, at once. But two on one, almost in any situation, the two guys are going to win. Like unless it's a bar brawl and one guy's Kane Velasquez and the other guy's uh, two small little guys. Like you've seen fight circus, you've seen two on one matches. If you have any idea of what you're doing, the two on one, they're, they're going to win. So both Diaz versus Chemayev, 100% two Diaz brothers versus one guy, they're going to beat him. Now, what if you were to do back-to-back, -back, right? What if he was to fight Nate Diaz and then fight Nick Diaz right after? Well, I, I think he also beats both of them. But what if you were to do Nick Diaz and Nate Diaz, but they rotate every round, right? So your first round, you got to fight Nate Diaz. Then the second round, you're fighting Nick. And third round, you're fighting Nate again. And fourth round, you're fighting Nick. And the, that that would be dope. Unfortunately, we live in, or unfortunately, it's the 
United States of America, they have rules and regulations. Never let something like that go down. (laughs) Yeah, and also Nick Diaz is in terrible physical shape right now. Probably needs a neck surgery. So I I would say that's not the best idea. But I'm just trying to find ways to spice this one up because I I don't think Chemayev loses, Um, especially because of the Burns fight. He didn't look great in the Burns fight. But I think when you're undefeated and you're talking about how you're the best and you're smashing everybody – and you're, you know, finishing guys in record quick time. And there was no, no, what was it? Not nobody hit him in three straight fights. Not one yeah. single strike landed. That's crazy, man. That's absolutely crazy for a prize fighter. All of that eventually does kind of get to you. And I think fighting a guy like Burns, getting a little tired, getting a little rocked, getting a little bit uh, bewildered. That's, that's good for a fighter. You go back to the drawing board and you say, these are the things that I need to change. So I am actually expecting a better version of Kamzat. And, of course, they've, the UFC's been like, dude, so here's the thing. You fight Nate Diaz, your 20-to-1 favorite. If Kamaru Usman beats Leon Edwards, when are you get a title fight? And then it's like, damn, dude, Leon Edwards just knocked out Kamaru Usman. And they're still talking about giving Chimaev the title fight. Leon Roberts himself was like, yeah, it's not a foregone conclusion that we're fighting Usman again. we got to see what happens in the Chimaev fight. Why is he thinking that? Because that's what the UFC's told him, right? They would rather do Chimaev fight if... Edwards wins, then we can do the Usman rematch. If Edwards loses and Chimaev's the champion, he can fight Usman. It's all about just who brings in the most money. And Chimaev brings in money. He's a fan favorite. Leon Edwards definitely got a popularity boost because of the head kick. He wasn't exactly like uh, a pay-per-view seller. He wasn't exactly like a big-name guy. Like Most guys refuse to fight him, and he doesn't really have the most spectacular style. You know, He's won a couple boring decisions he barely squeaked by gunner nelson i shouldn't say barely squeaked by just third round he looked like shit um yeah there's not a whole lot to love there so i could see them kind of just jamming chamayev in regardless he needs a big performance and i think he realizes that his team realizes that he'll go in there and do the damn thing i'm just hoping diaz lasts a round potentially one and a half rounds and that's the only prop that i i see myself attacking on this main event yeah, we're we're on the opposite ends there. I get the I get that angle. I might be reading into Diaz's demeanor a little bit too much, and the fact that he may not just even bother fighting in this spot. But uh, yeah, uh, Chimaev's going to get him down. It just depends on how effective he can be once he gets him to the mat. Cody's got the over. I got the under. Let's see how that ends up going. All right, let's get these uh, cloud bat props out of the way and do our uh, three best prop bets, and then we'll get the hell out of here. So, uh, main card fastest finish. What are you thinking here, Cody? I'm going to go Chimaev plus 400. <laughs> Straight up. Yeah, yeah. That that would make a lot of sense. I would back you up on that. The only other one that I would... Uh, Kudalaba's got a shot, and I think Kevin Holland's got a shot. But the smartest pick would be Chimaev and Kudalaba. Kudalaba just swings like a madman. I don't I don't have him winning, so I would take Chimaev. But if you were going to bet someone other than that main event, I think, I think that's probably a look to go towards. But uh, yeah, with Chimaev, if he finishes within the first two it's likely a faster finisher. I can't take Kudalaba because I'm picking Johnny Walker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got Kevin Holland to win, right? But it's going to be a little bit later probably than Chimaev. And then outside of that, you know, what do you got? Irene Aldana versus Chase on could go decision. Ferguson versus Jingliang Li. Jingliang Li could. I guess you got a couple guys with suspect chins taking on heavy hitters. But uh, I'm going to agree with you. I'll just take the Chimaev at plus 400. Uh, fight of the night. I'll probably lean uh, Ferguson and Jing Liang at plus 750. That is if Ferguson's durability holds up. What are you thinking here? 
Daniel Rodriguez versus Kevin Holland plus 850. Daniel Rodriguez yeah. generally goes and lands over 100 significant strikes per fight. Kevin Holland, not known for as much pace, but has decent pace. It's likely going to be striker versus striker. I can't really see either guy really looking to implement the grappling too, too much. And I feel like D-Rod's going to start out quick. He could fatigue a little bit. Holland could come come back. Holland, we've seen him lose some first rounds before, catch a second round knockout. I just think that'll be a little more drama. It'll be a little more action packed. And Holland likes to talk during the fight. That shit's entertaining, right? Yeah. So if he's talking, he's saying, you know, whatever, whoever may be there, he's always talking to somebody. I just think it'll be entertaining fight. It should be two strikers. They're going to land over 100 significant strikes. There could be a knockout. I'm hoping on the Kevin Holland side because I'd love to hit that big plus money ticket. But, um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with Holland versus D-Rod as fight of the night. I like it. And then uh, main card successful takedowns over under 11 and a half. 11 and a half. Okay, so let's say you're going to get two out of Chimaev. You got two. Ferguson, Lee, oh, you might be lucky to get one. Man, yeah, I'm that's hard under, under for me, that's dog. A hard that's under hard under for me. For me. <laughs> Some of these fights may not last long. That's like, what I mean. Like, uh, I don't see many takedowns happening here. No, um, I don't. Yeah, under 11 and a half is currently sitting at minus 109. And then last one here, we got fastest finish on the entire card. What are you thinking? I'll still stick with Chimaev at plus 1,200. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Fastest finish on the entire card. Well, I know it don't sound pretty, but I can't go back against most of the stuff I've said. So, it, yeah, sure, Chimaev. If not Chimaev, dude, plus 2,400 on Johan Lainez? Sheesh. The guy does Bad. throw heavy, but I, but I understand his opponent's never been knocked out this and that. The way the guy fights, plus 2,400. It's a flyer, baby. It's a flyer. I don't mind that at all. I love it. I love it. All right, let's get to the three best prop bets. And just a reminder that you guys can bet on all these special props, courtesy of CloudBet. Link is in the description below. Check them out. All right, three best prop bets. Let's get this on the road. I'll kick it off as always. First of which, I'm going to go to Chimaev Diaz under one and a half. I got plus 120. You can get plus 100 right now. I really think Chimaev smashes them almost immediately. Uh, the, the stat that I forgot to mention in my breakdown was since 2007, everybody who's attempted to take down on Diaz has landed a takedown, other than Conor McGregor and Hermes Franca. Or sorry, uh, I want to say Hermes, but uh, Conor McGregor and Takanori Gomi, uh, who combined went 0 of 3 on takedown. So Chmaev is going to get him down. He'll get him down early, and I think he'll smish him almost immediately. Secondly, uh, Aldana via KO, plus 450. I think she's the much better striker here than Kiesal. And once she starts stuffing a couple of these takedowns, getting into her groove in the striking, she'll eventually land that big blow and put down Macy Kiesal. And then this last one, a little bit wacky. You guys know me. I love my wacky props. But Tony Ferguson by sub, plus 800. Whether it's a club and sub situation or he just snatches the neck at a certain point, two of the losses on Lee Jing Liang's record in the UFC have come via submission. And I think Tony Ferguson is absolutely live to do the exact same thing. So hopefully that one comes in. But even as a feel-good story, it would be great to see Ferguson get that dub, no matter how it comes. All right, Cody, what do you got, my friend? Shit, you got three plus money props? Let me hit some of my own. Collier inside the distance, plus 105. I, I think he could get a TKO. I think he could get a submission. If you want to be greedy on either side, you would chase that. But I just think he gets done inside the distance. Whether it's going to be pressure, Chris Barnett doesn't seem to deal good with pressure, pace, or submissions. At some point, I see him turtling up, giving up his neck, calling it a day. So you get bold and go with the, the submission prop. I just want to play it safe, take that collier inside the distance, 
plus 105. Moving down, we got a little plus 110. Hakeem Duadu, by decision. You and I both agree we think Hakeem Duadu wins the fight. He's surgical. He's precise. Should be able to get the jab and the low kicks going. The only concern would be Arosa goes into YOLO mode because he's getting touched up from the outside, charges in, and he has been knocked out in the past. But Hakeem Duadu not necessarily uh, showing off a whole lot of striking power these days in the UFC. Last time he got a TKO victory, Years ago, third round finish over Tamiko Hori. I would say that uh, this one has a good chance of going to decision. If that's the case, we got Duwadu plus 110. Don't feel bad about it. And then you got these big old plus 450s, plus 800. Little Cody got to step his game up. <laughs> Kevin Holland plus 190. If you listen to Manpreet and you shop around different books, um, there's better prices available. You get a plus yeah. 200, plus 210. Best price available, I believe, plus 220. Unfortunately, like uh, I have like a long uh, standing relationship with like one particular book and they give me these shit lines. So when I send them over to Manfred, it's like I send them the lines that I got. And that's what I unfortunately got. So uh, again, not the sexiest pick just because D-Rod never been knocked out. And I know there's a lot of love for him as an underdog selection this week. I just feel like he hasn't necessarily fought the guys of Kevin Holland's level. He's going to get out there. He's going to try to make it a scrap. He's taking the fight on short notice. He's up an extra 10 pounds. Oh, I'm going to clip him with something. That's the gut feeling. So I will be playing him straight up, of course. This is a prop show. And you can get good plus money on that knockout prop. I love it. There you guys go. The best props for UFC 279. Hopefully they're able to come through. I think I went two and two out of three last week. Cody went one out of three. But I believe the week before that, he went two of three. We're aiming to hit at least two of the three that we always give you guys. And hopefully that's enough to put some cash we in. We usually bank. hit three between the two of us. But we yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Let's go six. What? Let's go. What? Three of yeah, I would absolutely hope that we're able to pull that off this weekend. My ass is falling asleep because I've been sitting in this chair for six goddamn hours. This is the third stream of the day that I've done. I got one more at 10 p.m. Eastern. Hopefully not with Hermes Franca with that. <laughs> not with Hermes Franca. Oh, I'm out of here, man. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll hit you one last time, or uh, Cody. Anything you want to say on the back, and I'll wrap this thing up. No, that's it, man. Appreciate you guys taking the time out of your night to join us on the Prop Show. Me and Manpreet always have a lot of fun doing it. I know this one's run late. We said we are going to keep it short. And, um, <laughs> I, I, We always say it, but I don't give a fuck. I don't care whether we go two and a half, three hours, but luckily my voice is still here, so thank God. Yeah, and that's it. And honestly, like, I know, uh, I don't know, whether you're coming for the picks, whether you're coming from the entertainment, whether you're coming from just, like, different insight, I appreciate the people in the comment section. I, people, I appreciate the discussion. And even if you are fading or following you you agree you don't agree yeah i mean we're just we've built up a community where we got a lot of cool guys come in here so uh again thanks to everyone normally i would say hit me up on twitter at cj saftic but like it's got shit going on so i haven't really been looking at it so uh if you need to get a hold of me like if it was something you wanted to actually get a hold of me shoot man a message he can text me up I'll Paul or something like that <laughs> and then outside of that uh yeah, I mean, this is not the best card to parlay stuff together, so it's going to be a difficult task. Probably better on a prop standpoint, but all the same. Ain't going to quit, right? Ain't going to pull a Nate Diaz? Hopefully he doesn't quit. Wow, he can quit after the one and a half. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I'm hoping it's under one and a half. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. You know what? We can't go six for six on our combined prop. <laughs> so I guess we'll see what happens. But all the same, dude, it was fun as always, so I appreciate it, and I'll catch you guys later. Yes, and the best part about whenever Cody does his uh, his podcast in this setup is seeing it turn from daylight to nighttime in the <laughs> his back window. It's absolutely amazing. I love seeing that. All right, uh, appreciate everybody that checked out the show. I can't wait to go find out what happened with the press conference and seeing anything that they're able to post there. Uh, make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe. We will be back next week. 
for Sandhagen versus Yudong. Breaking down the props on that card. Same time, same place, Thursday, 5 p.m. Eastern, right here on the All-Star Network. Appreciate everybody showing support. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe. Good luck on your bets and all that stuff. And we'll see you next week. Peace.